CBS News special report, The Death of George H.W. Bush. Here's correspondent Bill Rakoff. Good morning from Washington, which along with the rest of the country is observing a day of mourning for the 41st President George Herbert Walker Bush. Over the last 36 hours, Americans of all walks and stations of life have been paying their respects at the United States Capitol, where Mr. Bush lies in state in that building's venerated rotunda. Now today, the casket bearing the late president will be carried from the rotunda by a military honor guard for the procession to the Washington National Cathedral, where a state funeral is set to begin about one hour from now, 11 o'clock Eastern Time. Attendees already have been arriving at the cathedral on Wisconsin Avenue by the busload for the past couple of hours among the dignitaries already inside the cathedral, members of the current administration, also friends and members of Mr. Bush's administration, including the likes of Dick Cheney, Colin Powell, Tom Ridge, and many others. But for the moment, our focus is on the U.S. Capitol, where the Bush family is gathering to watch the casket brought out to the waiting hearse on the east front, the motorcade with former President George W. Bush and his wife Laura and other members of the family now making their way up uh, Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Capitol. CBS News correspondent Steve Dorsey joins us from the Capitol. And Steve, this is going to wrap up some 36 hours of public viewing for Mr. Bush. In the U.S. Capitol Rotunda, Bill, a fitting place for the casket uh, of former President George H.W. Bush, surrounded by the statues of his predecessors in the White House, including George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Dwight Eisenhower, Thomas Jefferson, and of course, the man for whom he served as his vice president, Ronald Reagan. Some 180 feet above his casket, the apotheosis of Washington fresco painted in 1865 depicting George Washington's rising to the heavens in glory. As thousands of people lined up around his casket paying tribute to his service to the country, not only in the White House, but also in the Navy, the CIA, the UN, the House and, of course, presiding over the U.S. Senate as vice president. We expect the Bush family, uh, including former President George W. Bush and his wife, former First Lady Laura Bush, to soon depart the Blair House. That's where they have been staying on the grounds of the White House across Pennsylvania Avenue. They will motorcade here. I believe they're doing that right now, uh, where they'll arrive here at any moment on the U.S. Capitol East Front. Once they arrive there, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, acting as the Honor Guard, will escort the casket to the hearse on the plaza. That hearse has been stationed there for the last at least half hour with the entire Capitol grounds closed to the public. Uh, once they are arriving here, that casket will be brought down those steps through the Corinthian columns, loaded into the hearse. That will be about a 10-minute a process, along with a 21-gun simultaneous salute, and then a motorcade drive of about 20 minutes to the National Cathedral Bill. And we're seeing a military honor guard uh, take its place outside the east front of the Capitol in a scene uh, repeated from just a couple of days ago for the arrival of Mr. Bush's casket. And, Steve, we're going to see uh, a lot of the same things we saw before. Uh, we're going to hear the ruffles and flourishes. We'll hear hail to the chief. And then we're also going to have a 21-gun salute as the casket is brought out. There is a piece of a motorcade that is now pulling on to the Capitol. 
uh, coming in from Independence Avenue. And there are pictures of uh, more vehicles that have just left Blair House. So the motorcade with the Bush family is on its way, some of them already arriving uh, at the U.S. Capitol. The hearse uh, sitting out front on top of what is now the Capitol Visitor's Center, a very expansive uh, east front plaza out there. Uh, Steve, the last 36 hours have been uh, pretty impressive to watch in terms of uh, uh, the ordinary Americans who went through the rotunda to pay their respects, but some of the dignitaries as well. Uh, it was very moving uh, yesterday and uh, humbling to be in the room when Senator Bob Dole was reeled in, uh, wheeled in, that is, and uh, insisted with the help of an aide to stand and render a salute with his one good arm. And uh, I can tell you, having watched it in person, it just sucked the air out of the room when that happened. Everybody just held their breath. But it was one of many, many moments uh, where people from all stations of life were able to pay their respects. And not only humans, Bill, but also animals, including the service dog Sully, who was with uh, former President Bush during his final moments of life. And he was captured in that poignant photograph, laying uh, still on guard on duty next to the casket in Texas of the former president. And now an honor guard is making its way up the east front steps at the central part of uh, the Capitol building. If you face it from the Supreme Court, you see the center steps, majestic, the original part of the Capitol building that was built so many years ago in the early 1800s. The Capitol building added on to in the 1860s to expand to include the new House and Senate chambers and, of course, uh, putting on the new uh, uh, dome, which uh, continues to this day. And it goes back to that, Steve, that uh, my son asked me this last night. He said... Uh, he said, I understand, he says, that there was something that the casket was sitting on that's historic. And I got to explain the story to him that the catafalque that Mr. Bush's casket was sitting on was built for uh, President Lincoln after his untimely death. And it's been used many, many times since. And it's just a sense of continuity that continues that they're able to do this sort of thing. And now, uh, as that has been tradition, this time-honored tradition continues with the military lining up out front of the Capitol. And it's in a hollowed space, Bill, uh, because this is not a space, the Capitol Rotunda, that is used uh, lightly. In fact, it requires uh, concurrent resolutions from both the House and the Senate to make use of this space, which often comes in the form of uh, prominent U.S. citizens, including some senators like John McCain, uh, and also uh, presidents to lie in state. A number of statues have also been dedicated in this hall as well. As we watch, the, uh, the, the major part of the motorcade carrying the Bush family now arrive in place on the East Capitol as the Honor Guard continues uh, to form, lining the Capitol steps uh, before the Corinthian columns as we await preparations to open the Columbus doors, those, those, those bronze doors to the East Capitol where they will now enter in just moments to retrieve the casket of the former president. 
And there are still buses of families and dignitaries making their way up Pennsylvania Avenue at this time. In the meantime, we're watching a video feed and a rather impressive one of the people going into the Washington National Cathedral. We'll talk more about this coming up uh, with WCBS reporter Rich Lamb, who is standing by there. But I just saw a shot that was remarkable of uh, former Vice Presidents Al Gore, uh, Joe Biden, uh, with the current Vice President, Mike Pence, uh, who then also greeted former President Jimmy Carter and uh, his wife, Rosalind, who are there in attendance, and uh, former uh, President Carter and uh, Vice President Pence holding a conversation, the two uh, deeply rooted in their Christian faith, and uh, there was a smile on both of their faces. They held hands and embraced and shook hands for a while. Also, uh, again, and members of the current administration have already arrived at the cathedral, and that includes uh, presidential daughter Ivanka Trump and her husband, advisor Jared Kushner. Back to the U.S. Capitol for a moment. Um, what was interesting to me to watch uh, yesterday, especially as people came through, there was genuine emotion. There's a certain cynicism about uh, members of Congress and members of the government who work in Washington and the way the public views them. There's a little bit of skepticism about any genuine sense of feeling about things. But I can tell you there were members of Congress, uh, uh, too many to mention at various times, came forward uh, to offer their respects. And when they turned around to leave, you could see I mean, true emotion on some of these people's faces. Uh, so relationships are formed here, and whatever you might think of official Washington and its uh, uh, capabilities and efficiencies to govern, uh, these people do form bonds, they form friendships, and they share successes and failures together. And that, to me, was more than evident yesterday, Steve. Absolutely, and I think, Bill, what you notice is the tone and message of the tributes that have been paying respect to this former president who served only one term but who had a legacy uh, in Washington, one of steady, even-handed leadership, uh, not making it about himself, making it about his team, of course, noted for his service to others, not only in service to this country, but service through his, his foundation, which promotes uh, public policy work and service to uh, the U.S. government and, and to, to people around this country. Uh, this is something that you see on a bipartisan basis. You've been seeing that on tributes uh, by uh, the uh, House Speaker, Paul Ryan, also the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, and the Vice President, the current Vice President, uh, Mike Pence, in tributes and eulogies here at the U.S. Capitol on Tuesday, where uh, the former president has been lying in state uh, since Monday morning, Monday evening. Uh, you also hear that across the aisle from Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, who uh, participated in laying a wreath at the casket of the former president, and also in uh, tributes on the Senate floor from the Democratic minority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer. So this is uh, something that uh, will be important to Mark here at the U.S. Capitol because this will be his final time departing the U.S. Capitol where he served as a Texas congressman, of course, in the House, but also presided over the Senate under Ronald Reagan as his vice president and left his mark not only in Washington, not only at the White House, but certainly here 
at the nation's capital. And you mentioned Chuck Schumer, who, along with the other leaders of Congress, both on the Republican and Democratic side, he, of course, the minority Senate leader, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, with his wife, Elaine Chow, uh, the House Speaker, Paul Ryan, with his wife, and also uh, uh, the uh, minority leader of the House, possibly soon to become Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, are all standing outside, along with members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who are serving as an honor guard. What we're waiting for now is for the rest of the motorcade to arrive, and we are watching an extremely slow procession of uh, buses uh, coming up the road, being escorted by D.C. Uh, motor officers and uh, other police officers, but they are taking their time traveling at about, uh, I would say, 20 miles an hour. It may be a little bit before they get to the Capitol. I want to take and uh, turn for just a moment uh, to uh, WCBS reporter Rich Lamb, who's been kind enough to offer his services to us. He is at the Washington National Cathedral. And again, uh, Rich, as uh, you stand out there in the cold, I know the dignitaries are warm inside. I just saw a shot of Prince Charles, one of the many foreign dignitaries in attendance today. But good morning and uh, kind of set the stage for us, would you? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and we just saw Colin Powell right next to Prince Charles there. So it's a, it's a star-studded occasion over here, solemn, uh, but uh, obviously uh, a celebration as well. Uh, we can tell you that uh, we've been watching, and we see uh, Joe Biden is in there, Mike Pence, uh, Al Gore, Tom Ridge. Uh, we saw Rudy Giuliani going in, who was, uh, of course, an ex-mayor of New York City. I did uh, about 90 talk shows with him, and uh, now he has uh, fashioned himself as the president's lawyer. Uh, Dick Cheney, and uh, we mentioned Colin Powell, Angela Merkel, uh, Condoleezza Rice. So... Uh, an awful lot of familiar names. Uh, you really can't, uh, to, to list all of them, you'd be here all day. But to talk about uh, this place just for a moment, the National Cathedral. So uh, we're located at Massachusetts and Wisconsin uh, in northwest Washington. Now, this place was begun uh, in 1907 uh, and uh, in the presence of then-President Theodore Roosevelt, who made a little speech. And ironically, it was finished 83 years later in the, president, in the presence of President George H.W. Bush in 1990. Uh, and since then, it was damaged in an earthquake. There are millions of dollars of damage that have been done, uh, and they're still raising the money for that. But uh, in history, uh, this place uh, goes back a long way. There, this is the fourth state funeral that uh, will have been held here. Uh, president Dwight Eisenhower had his funeral service from here, uh, President Gerald Ford, President Ronald Reagan, and now President George H.W. Bush. So a, a long and honored history here at the National Cathedral. Bill? And as we watch people inside, uh, I see uh, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who is very much a close ally and a friend of George H.W. Bush. And in fact, uh, he is one of the ones selected uh, to give a eulogy today. That's right. Uh, he'll, he'll be among the, the people eulogizing uh, the president, uh, along with John Meacham, who is an author, uh, and uh, Alan Simpson. Of course, we know he was a senator, and 
and, uh, and, and of course, George W. Bush, the, the son of the late president, uh, who has been, it seems, almost omnipresent uh, in these days uh, after his father's death. He's been uh, on television broadcasts uh, uh, delivering his recollections, and uh, he's, a, he's an emotional kind of guy, too. And we saw him also in, in the rotunda uh, the other day, not only paying tribute in a, in a very solemn fashion, very sad-looking, uh, George W. Bush, but then he turned around and, and met the people, the citizens, who, who were there to pay their tribute, and I think there is even a picture of him holding up a baby. Yes. Uh, I mean, it was a, a remarkable moment. Uh, uh, you know, you go from the sorrow to the joy right across that line. It was uh, an amazing thing to see. That was interesting. I was in the rotunda when that happened. We were given very little notice that uh, the Bush family was coming, and what was interesting to me was they closed the large doors that was letting the public in as if uh, to make it a private event for the Bushes. Uh, after some huddling, we saw some Capitol Police officers and others huddling, the doors were opened again and people were let in. Um, it was a point, it seemed, for the former president and for the family to want to have the people in there when they came in. They did not want necessarily a private moment, but they did want the opportunity to uh, uh, to, to intermingle. And that they did. The former president and uh, first lady went to the casket. They spent a moment in prayer, but they went right to the rope line afterwards. And uh, all the other Bush children and grandchildren that were there, uh, the Bush twins, uh, all started shaking hands. But former President Bush went all the way around the rope line, all all the way around the uh, uh, the rotunda, and it was right at the end, Rich, where he was handed that baby, and it was such a moment because you could tell there was a lot of heartfelt emotion. Um, it wasn't a heavy mood by any sense of the imagination, but when he picked up that baby, there was a collective awe from the crowd. And what was funny about it was that if you know the acoustics in that rotunda, it just echoed off the walls. And it was such a heartwarming moment for everybody who was in the room. And I'm sure it didn't translate onto TV as well as it did in person. But uh, it was such a great moment to see the family connect uh, with supporters, with friends, and with ordinary Americans who simply wanted to pay their respects. I want to go back to Steve Dorsey now as uh, we're seeing uh, the other motorcade uh, make its way now onto the East Front Plaza at the Capitol. And again, this is a broad expanse plaza. If you've been to the Capitol before, years ago, this used to be a giant parking lot. Then they went through the uh, construction of the Capitol Visitor, uh, Visitor Center, uh, many, many millions of dollars. But what has resulted is a beautiful east front plaza uh, that is uh, set up just so perfectly for events like this. And now uh, we're getting ever closer to the moment uh, when uh, we'll see the casket brought out. We're going to be a few minutes away. I see presidential daughter... Uh, Doro, uh, uh, Bush, Koch, and uh, other members of the family beginning to make their way up, Steve. Absolutely. They have uh, arrived, uh, exiting their vehicles right now. Those uh, three or so buses carrying the majority of the Bush family invited uh, to this departure service. Watching right now Jeb Bush uh, take part in uh, awaiting the departure of the casket. This motorcade, as you mentioned earlier, traveled slowly along Pennsylvania Avenue, crossing Constitution Avenue to the left of the east wing of the National Gallery of Art, crossing 
past the Capitol reflecting pool, the west front of the Capitol, and then making a left past the uh, Rayburn House office building before crossing into the East Capitol Plaza complex where uh, President, uh, former President George W. Bush is now standing, awaiting for this departure ceremony uh, to officially begin, Bill. And so what we will have happen is uh, this uh, procession, much as we saw it in reverse going in the other day, and then there will be about a 20-minute motorcade, from what we understand, that'll go from Capitol Hill. It'll make its way back down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, up uh, skirting uh, the Georgetown area, in fact, not too far from uh, where we're anchoring the broadcast from, and then make its way up onto Wisconsin Avenue, uh, for the trip uh, north. CBS's Steve Futterman is also joining us today. He is in Texas, and that's where uh, things will shift after today's state funeral service back to Texas, back to home for the former president, and uh, for the final time, one last trip to College Station. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. Special Air Mission 41, that's the presidential plane that we normally refer to as Air Force One, will bring the body back to Ellington Field late this afternoon early evening, depending on what time it uh, takes off from uh, Joint Base Andrews, but it will arrive here. Uh, the body of the former president will be uh, given the full honors as it's removed from the plane, then a motorcade back to St. Martin's Episcopal Church. This is the longtime church of the Bush family. This is where the services for Barbara Bush took place in April. The body will be placed inside the church, and then all night long, People from Houston and the surrounding areas will be allowed to walk past as the body lies in repose. The flag-draped coffin lies in repose, and we expect many, many tens of thousands of people to pay tribute. This is going to be going on all night long, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., till early tomorrow morning. Then tomorrow, the final memorial service, and then the last trip to College Station, Texas, where the body will be laid to rest at the George Herbert Walker Bush Presidential Library. All right, Steve Futterman in Texas, thank you. Now a very impressive sight as uh, the ceremony begins to remove the former president's casket from the Capitol. Steve Dorsey, you can tell us more. His casket draped in an American flag through those 17-foot-tall bronze doors, known as the Columbus doors, that depict Christopher Columbus's journey in discovering America and cast in Munich in 1860 as the honor guard continues down the first steps just past those Corinthian columns. Right now, this casket being slowly carried down those steps with each member of the armed services branches represented in these honor guard ceremonies. This will begin ruffles and flourishes with a simultaneous 21-gun salute happening as it did on Monday on the West Front, echoing through the sandstone and limestone edifices throughout the National Mall and the Capitol Complex right now, of course, we're hearing hail to the chief as folks on this side of the Capitol Complex salute or place their hands over their hands.
the 21 gun salute now just wrapping up. You heard ruffles and flourishes and hail to the chief, the honor guard. Still grasping the casket of former President George H.W. Bush draped in an American flag remaining still as we await this departure ceremony to continue. Former, Vice Pre former President George W. Bush and former First Lady Laura Bush looking on through this corridor of military service men and women lining the East Capitol steps with the casket at the top waiting to be carried down the steps through that military cordon and placed in the hearse for the motorcade to begin to depart for the National Cathedral in just moments. steps, approaching the hearse, step by step, of course, in coordinated, practiced fashion that's been prepared for for the last several years, planning for 
this day, this week. The undergarden casket now making a left turn. Approaching the rear of the hearse. inside the hearse. departure with the hatch of the hearse now being closed for this 20-minute ride journey to the National Cathedral in Upper Northwest Washington. The family now being escorted back by the military to their vehicles as they begin their journey at any moment. Also members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who served as the Honorary Guard, they are marching toward their vehicles at this time. The hearse will be ready to leave in just a moment. Steve Dorsey at the U.S. Capitol. I'm Bill Rakoff here in Washington, and we're joined again this afternoon or this morning by uh, Rich Lamb, our uh, reporter from our affiliate WCBS in New York, who is at the Washington National Cathedral, and Steve Futterman uh, in Houston. Uh, in just a moment, uh, well, why don't we talk to him now for just a little bit. We are privileged to have uh, former CBS News White House correspondent Peter Mayer joining us. Uh, Peter, who covered the Bush administration, among others, uh, and grew close to the family over the years. Uh, they have a tendency to happen that way when you have administrations and people who cover them that way. Peter, thank you so much. Welcome to the broadcast. And I just wanted to get your sense of your thoughts as you're getting ready to attend the funeral today. Well, Bill, I'm uh, here inside the National Cathedral, and uh, I just spoke to Senator Bob Dole, former Senate Majority Leader, close friend of uh, President Bush's, who, of course, uh, just stirred the nation by stopping and saluting at uh, President Bush's coffin yesterday in the Capitol Rotunda. 
And Senator Dole told, just kept saying over and over again, what an outpouring of affection for President Bush. And I spoke to his wife, uh, former uh, Labor Secretary Elizabeth Dole, and uh, she shared those thoughts. Um, we've seen, uh, just entering here in front of me, uh, former President Obama and uh, Jimmy Carter and, and uh, Rosalind Carter. And uh, all, of the, all of the living former presidents are here and so many family members. And uh, it's, a, it's quite a reunion of uh, friends of, of the Bushes. There's a whole section uh, reserved for former cabinet members. And uh, this is just uh, the, the tribute that, frankly, uh, George Bush wrote for himself because that's what presidents do when they're in office. This is one of the, I guess, stranger rituals where they script and choreograph their own funerals. And so, Peter, I wonder about that because I heard he was sort of loath to do that until somebody told him, well, sir, it's your job to do it. And so he sat down. Uh, what do you think, at, uh, having covered him for so long, that he would have made of uh, the number of people that have turned out, not just here at the cathedral today for you, but uh, over the past couple of days through the rotunda and lying in state? Well, you know, look, I think that, you know, his middle names were uh, Herbert Walker, but it also could have been Modesty. Uh, so, I, you know, I think he probably, having attended these things himself, uh, would have sensed what it was going to be like, but I don't think anyone, including members of his own family, could grasp it. I've, I've talked to a number of people who were very close to him, former Chief of Staff Andrew Card, talked to him a moment ago, and, and he just shook his head and he said, isn't this something? CBS News White House correspondent emeritus uh, Peter Mayer is joining us from inside the uh, Washington National Cathedral. And we're watching some of the pictures there of people greeting each other, former presidents, uh, uh, former vice presidents, members of Congress, members of the administration. It's quite a fraternity of people that are inside that building, and you've covered many of them, Peter. Describe what it's like uh, at these events, and now that you're uh, actually in the room where it's happening, to borrow a phrase. Well, I've covered many of these things, and I was just saying to uh, a former uh, White House uh, reporting colleague, Bill, that, uh, you know, I, I've never been a guest, and uh, my wife and I, uh, just on a personal note, were just so honored to uh, receive the engraved invitation from the family to be here, uh, but that doesn't stop me from describing uh, to you what's going on, and I think another thing that really impresses me is the total bipartisan nature of this crowd. You know, I'm sure that uh, if you get a head count that uh, Democrats would be outnumbered by the Republicans here because uh, this was, of course, uh, uh, a man who served 12 years, uh, eight as vice president and uh, four as president and all of the other uh, different offices and positions that he held. Uh, but uh, there are so many people from both parties here uh, greeting each other in the commonality of their friendship with uh, George H.W. Bush. And again, this is a man who is described, Peter, as a man who is probably better qualified for the position than uh, his predecessor might have been from an experience standpoint and certainly from others who've come along afterwards. But he literally served in uh, all the areas of government as a legislator, uh, as somebody who was uh, uh, involved in policy, as somebody who was involved in intelligence. And we see the fruits of that labor in attendance here today as well. Well, that's for sure. Uh, and, you know, I guess he really uh, reaped what he sowed in terms of uh, cooperation. There's so many foreign leaders here. Um, the former leader of, of the Solidarity, a Solidarity movement in Poland, Lech Walesa, of 
course, became the leader of Poland itself. Uh, I was on a trip to, to Warsaw where uh, he and President Bush met. Uh, Brian Mulroney is here, the former uh, Canadian prime minister. Um, we saw uh, Prince Charles of, of England arrive. So it's just uh, a real mixture of everything that uh, represents uh, former uh, the late President Bush, uh, both diplomatically and uh, and what he did when he was in office domestically. We'll let you go here in just a moment, but I want to ask you what you're anticipating most out of this service today. Well, I, I think um, just the the shape of the messages of uh, Senator uh, former Senator Alan Simpson and those who will be eulogizing. Uh, the president, and really just the majesty and the pageantry of, of all of this, and perhaps we can chat about it when the service is over. Would love to do that. CBS News White House correspondent emeritus, I hope you don't mind that title, but it surely fits. Peter Mayer joining us from inside the Washington National Cathedral. Thanks for your time, and we'll talk to you afterwards. Sure, Bill. And you are listening to continuing coverage of the state funeral for former President George Herbert Walker Bush from CBS News. I'm Bill Rakoff in Washington. We are joined by Steve Dorsey at the Capitol, Rich Lamb at the National Cathedral, and Steve Futterman in Houston. Let's go now to the Cathedral. Rich Lamb is with us from our affiliate WCBS. We just saw pictures just a moment ago of the arrival of uh, President Trump and the First Lady. Indeed, uh, we did. And I just, uh, just for a minute, I would like to just mention, uh, as we were watching uh, uh, the scene in front of the Capitol there, the shots of uh, George W. Bush's face, it seemed like he was really struggling. Uh, and it re struggling for control because of the emotion that was obviously running through him. Well, you'd have to speculate. You wonder what, what's going through his mind. Certainly he's thinking about his father and then wondering, you know, one day will people be standing here for me? But beyond that, he talked about a moment that happened here at the National Cathedral just after 9-11 when they had a, a national service. Uh, and his father was sitting in the same pew, one person apart from him. Uh, and he said he was really struggling to control his emotions. Uh, and at one point, his father just reached over and put his hand uh, on, on, on the, the president's hand, on George W. Bush's hand. Uh, so that uh, he said that that was a moment that he'll never forget, that it seemed to give him new strength. And I think that he was standing there now uh, looking at his father's uh, flag-draped casket being loaded into the hearse and really st struggling about that. Uh, but here, uh, of course, the anticipation is that there are going to be many words of praise uttered today uh, for George H.W. Bush, uh, the 41st President of the United States, uh, and uh, they will be uttered by, by many people, uh, among them uh, John Meacham, an author, uh, and the, uh, Brian Mulroney, who became very close to, to, the, um, to the late president. Uh, he is, of course, uh, the former prime minister of Canada. Uh, and Alan Simpson, uh, uh, ex-senator, and, of course, uh, George W. Bush will be delivering a tribute as well. And we look at the program. And the program is really filled with music. Uh, and there will be uh, music from the uh, Armed Forces Chorus, from the United States Marine Orchestra. Uh, there are a number of uh, very American tunes. Uh, Our Town is one of the tunes that's going to be heard. Uh, My Song in the Night, uh, the Hymn to the Fallen. And, and there will be uh, very familiar tunes, America the Beautiful. 
And of course, there will be the four ruffles and flourishes, uh, four ruffles and flourishes always reserved for the President of the United States. Uh, and then, of course, uh, hail to the chief. And, and that is a, a very emotional moment, I think, uh, for the Bush family to hear that inside the cathedral. And if you've ever lost a loved one, you know that a funeral service inside of a church, as, you, as it winds up and as you head for the doors, uh, it's a very final feeling. It's a feeling of, of loss that is suddenly all coming together in one moment. Now, there's been a lot of, uh, of that, uh, many moments in, this, in these days of mourning for the George H.W. Bush. This National Day of Mourning, though, in that moment, I think, when they leave the church, when that casket leaves the church here, will not be the final time it leaves the church, but it, but it certainly will be an emotional moment. Bill? Rich Lamb uh, at the Washington National Cathedral. We are watching the funeral procession make its way very slowly up Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, the hearse is now uh, getting down into the area uh, close to the White House. It will do uh, a circle around the White House before it starts to head up uh, to the north and then eventually on to Wisconsin Avenue. Uh, but there is a rather impressive uh, crowd along Pennsylvania Avenue, four or five deep in some places uh, as the procession approaches 14th Street. And not forgetting that this is a national day of mourning, and that means uh, government is essentially shut down here. Postal delivery is postponed. Schools in D.C. are out today, although in uh, some of the suburban areas, uh, school is still in session, but that has allowed uh, for a larger crowd to gather. Uh, along the road and uh, so they have and they've turned out uh, waving there are some in uniform who are offering salutes many with their hands over their hearts inside the cathedral I just saw a moment uh, Steve Futterman it was kind of interesting it's, it's it's like the vice president's club the current vice president uh, Mike Pence talking with Mr. Bush's vice president Dan Quayle who we don't see a lot in the public eye but uh, he is here today uh, and uh, is seated uh, along with his wife, Marilyn, next to the current vice president. You know, one thing that uh, I think George Herbert Walker Bush intentionally wanted to do, obviously he was aware of the discord in the country right now. The Bush family reached out, made it very clear to President Trump that he was welcome uh, to be at this ceremony. And remember George Herbert Walker Bush's acceptance speech in 1988, one of the lines that resonated from that speech, which, by the way, was a, a critical speech uh, at the time of the convention. He trailed Michael Dukakis. That was a, a great acceptance speech and really began to turn the tide in his favor in 1988. But he talked about a kinder, gentler nation. That's, that's a quote that still resonates when you think of uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, along with, read my lips, no new taxes. But the kinder, gentler nation quote. And what we're seeing today is much different than what we saw at the John McCain funeral where the current discord was put on display. Here today, we don't expect to see that. President Trump is here. Melania Trump is here. The vice president's here. All the former presidents are here. This is what George Herbert Walker Bush specifically wanted. He could have uh, told President Trump he didn't want him here. He did not do that. He wanted him here to show that there's unity in the American presidency, and that's what we're seeing today. And now the uh, funeral procession is making its way onto Pennsylvania Avenue. It is going to do a pass-by of the White House one final time 
before uh, making the turn, as we said, north to head toward the Washington National Cathedral. The hearse now with the president on board, uh, passing the east gate of the White House with uh, members of the Secret Service Uniform Division standing at attention and saluting with white gloves. The hearse now passing by the executive mansion. One final visit to the White House for George Herbert Walker Bush. now passing the west gate west executive avenue will be passing by the old executive office building here momentarily a poignant moment steve dorsey uh, these things are full of symbolism as they always are but uh, uh to watch a hearse carrying the former occupant of 1600 pennsylvania drive by the residence uh makes you sit up and it makes you notice especially with the Secret Service lining the fence line as this motorcade passes by them, each member of the Secret Service saluting for the final time, their final duty in protecting this president. And as you mentioned, Bill, this journey continues now along Pennsylvania Avenue. It's expected to uh, head through 17th Street before passing north, making his way farther northwest into Washington, where it will soon arrive at the National Cathedral. It uh, passed a number of uh, landmarks, including the FBI building, uh, Freedom Plaza near the White House, where, as you noted earlier, lines of citizens uh, were watching, saluting uh, this passing motorcade along Pennsylvania Avenue that was lined with American flags and, and District of Columbia flags. It also passed the Canadian Embassy where, as uh, Peter Mayer and Rich Lamb noted at the National Cathedral, uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney will deliver one of the eulogies for former President Bush. Uh, and because of that, because of the relationship between the former president and Canada, a current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has authorized all Canadian flags in the U.S. to fly at half-staff, including at the Canadian Embassy, where that motorcade passed, uh, representing the Canadian government ambassador to the U.S., Stephen McNaughton, and member of Parliament, Scott Bryson, at the funeral services today at the National Cathedral in Upper Northwest Washington. With that motorcade now still on Pennsylvania Avenue, very shortly expecting a turn on 17th Street, Bill. And that motorcade has finished passing the White House now. The Secret Service Honor Guard has now uh, stood down. Personnel are standing down and are going to resume their post. But a poignant moment for many of those uniformed officers, some of which who have been around since the Bush years, offering uh, one last goodbye. Uh, Rich Lamb back at the Washington National Cathedral uh, looking at a picture right now of the three former living presidents minus George W. Bush sitting uh, in the front row of the dignitaries section. Barack Obama and his wife Michelle, uh, President Bill Clinton, 
along with Hillary Clinton, a woman who would have been president, former President Jimmy Carter and his wife, Rosalind. Uh, Jimmy Carter, also a member of uh, that greatest generation, if you will, coming of age during World War II. He was in service at the U.S. Naval Academy at the time uh, that World War II broke out, later served in Korea. Uh, so, uh, again, when you look at these three leaders, you look at three differences uh, in style. Uh, you look at three different places in history, but it's remarkable that you have uh, just about 50 years of presidential history there. Yes, absolutely. And when you look at uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, I mean, he's 94 years old, so uh, same age as, uh, as, the, late, uh, as the late president, uh, who's being, uh, whose funeral will take place here today. So what can be going through his mind? And he also uh, had a miraculous recovery from brain cancer recently, a man of, of great faith and attributed it to that, and his wife, uh, Rosalind, as well. But she's uh, quite a bit younger. She's 81. Uh, and, uh, of course, across the front row, we do see Hillary Clinton and uh, what could be going through her mind. Uh, Bill Clinton, of course, next to her. And, and he's been talking, uh, chatting for quite some time now uh, with Michelle Obama. Uh, but uh, to Michelle Obama's right is uh, President Obama, Barack Obama. And he seems to be in a very contemplative mood. His, uh, his, uh, his gaze has been to the altar, and now he bows his head a little bit. Uh, and we wonder what's going through all of their minds. But, uh, but it very definitely is uh, an occasion where uh, notables from around the world, uh, uh, the uh, German prime minister uh, and as well uh, Prince Charles uh, is, in, uh, is in the congregation, if you will. Uh, and as has been noted, uh, many powerful people from administrations past and present uh, here it, it, there is there's a great majesty uh, to this uh, to this ceremony and now we see uh, President Trump uh, and uh, and his wife Melania uh, walking up uh, the main aisle to the uh, front of the cathedral here very slowly in a dignified fashion being led by uh, a military usher who is bringing them across the front of the uh, cathedral, presumably to a place uh, in the front row, although they seem to be passing that now. Not entirely sure where they're headed. Oh, there they are. There are a couple of seats at the end of that front row. The president uh, dressed in a blue tie, uh, as opposed to his normal red, taking his uh, overcoat off and handing it to an aide, Melania Trump now greeting uh, former President Obama, the president uh, doing the same, President Trump shaking the hands of Michelle Obama, and then uh, centering his gaze forward, all eyes on the current president, and now you have all uh, four living presidents, past and present, sitting in the same pew together. And, uh, Rich, if there was... Uh, <laughs> Repeating my uh, statement from earlier, the, the styles of leadership and the years representative in the backgrounds uh, with the president's uh, Trump's arrival, uh, it really becomes diverse. Absolutely. Uh, how, how do you characterize it? But all you can say is that uh, America is formed uh, of many different personalities and many different styles. And, and this uh, uh, is a leading representation of that, whether you agree or disagree with uh, 
uh, with one or any or, or all of the presidents or their styles, uh, here they are. And they, they're the leaders of the free world. Uh, they have uh, tremendous responsibilities. Uh, they are symbols in themselves. Uh, and, uh, and their histories uh, mean a lot to people. I mean, people study the presidency. And, uh, and you think about it going back to Washington. Uh, and there's a continuum here from Washington you know, to Lincoln uh, to Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and then you go on Woodrow Wilson. You go up through, you know, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Roosevelt, and Truman, Eisenhower, you know, Kennedy. You think back, uh, and, and the Kennedy funeral comes to mind. Uh, you think uh, about the pageantry there, something that the nation never dreamt of, an assassination. So to lose this 46-year-old president so suddenly on a Friday, and that whole weekend, uh, was, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy was planning, planning the funeral, and she wanted to look at what had done, been done from Lincoln. And, and so that continuum uh, is also represented here today, with the, the majesty of the presidency, and the pageantry of this of this ceremony are are just uh, unique. Yeah. You're seeing and hearing some of the music, I should say, from the United States Marine Orchestra right now. The prelude has begun with a song called Nocturne. There's also a chorus singing in the background, also taking part in the prelude, the Armed Forces Chorus, which you're hearing there. And they will be playing a series of songs as the motorcade continues to make its way toward the Washington National Cathedral, this grand space that was created for events such as this. Uh, we're going to be hearing from a number of people and seeing a number of people in this service, including the Most Reverend Michael Bruce Curry, who's the presiding bishop and the primate of the Episcopal Church. And if that name is familiar to you, it should be. He is the one who delivered that very inspiring uh, uh, sermon at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, some months ago and brought a taste of uh, American preaching, if you will, to... Uh, uh, British uh, culture and sensibility, and uh, by all accounts, it was uh, well-received. Uh, there are others uh, who we will hear and see from, the Right Reverend Marion Edgar Buddy. She is the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. She is the first female diocesan bishop of the Episcopal Church. Also, you'll have uh, the Reverend Dr. Russell Levinson, who's the rector from St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. He spoke at Barbara Bush's funeral back in April, and he is present today, as is the very Reverend Randolph Marshall Hollerith. He is the dean of the Washington National Cathedral. He led uh, the National Prayer Service, you might recall, at uh, the Washington National Cathedral the day after Donald Trump's inauguration as president. Reverend Canon John Naylor Cope. Uh, Jan Naylor Cope is the provost of the Washington National Cathedral and will also be on hand. As Rich mentioned, there are going to be eulogists today, and uh, they will include John Meacham, the, Houston, uh, the historian, and also a Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential biographer for George Herbert Walker Bush. He gave the eulogy at Barbara Bush's funeral in April, a close friend of the family. Uh, the Right Honorable Brian Mulrooney, is the former Prime Minister of Canada who served during Bush's term in office, part of it anyway, 1984 to 1993. Close friends, they would often fish together, and he spoke at the funeral for Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan. He's an impressive speaker, and it'll be interesting to see what he has to offer today, not just as a former head of state, but also as a friend. Also delivering those eulogies today, former Senator Alan Simpson. 
from Wyoming. He served in that chamber from 1979 to 1997. His friendship with the Bush family goes all the way back to the 1960s. And it was said that George H.W. Bush was considering him for the vice presidency in 1988. And of course, delivering uh, the final eulogy of the day will be former President George W. Bush, Bush 43, the first son of George and Barbara Bush. And of course, as Rich and others have mentioned, the second father-son duo to be president. As you know, the other duo was John Quincy Adams and John Adams. Music continues to play at the Washington National Cathedral as we await the arrival of the uh, funeral procession with the casket of George Herbert Walker Bush, members of the Bush family. Outside the Washington National Cathedral is Rich Lamb and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Rich, I see, have arrived and the military honor guard is in place. Indeed, indeed, there are a lot of stars on those shoulders, I'll tell you, a lot of four stars, and, uh, and anybody uh, who has been in the military would uh, probably find themselves saluting with, in, involuntarily. Uh, and now we see uh, the motorcycles are arriving, and I think I see through the fence here, yes, there it is, the hearse, with the two American flags uh, flying from the uh, quarter panels on the front of that uh, vehicle. So it is about to make a turn into uh, the National Cathedral here. Uh, the motorcycles have arrived ahead of it, and uh, that hearse now is turning onto the grounds here of the National Cathedral. We assume it will pull up very shortly in front of the main doors of this uh, cathedral, which is constructed, uh, we're told, of Indiana limestone. Uh, and it is uh, buff-colored. And the military honor guard standing at attention now on the steps, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a part of that. And we're watching now, of course, as the hearse pulls up in front ever so slowly. And now... will shortly come to a halt here in front of the front doors of the cathedral. There are many steps, but many, many fewer steps going into the cathedral than there were coming out of the U.S. Capitol. I attempted to count them before, and I think there were there are really two sets of four steps, about eight steps up there, so that's a a lot less of a challenge for the pallbearers than they had coming out of the cathedral, out of the capital. The hearse is stopped in front of the National Cathedral now, and uh, the rear door remains closed. All is in readiness. In all likelihood, they're waiting for the family to line up because it would be inappropriate to proceed without their being on hand to observe this moment. Military Honor Guard standing at attention. The Joint Chiefs of Staff inside all of the living presidents in the front row, along with many, many dignitaries awaiting this funeral service, which was scheduled to start at 11 o'clock. 
This is an Episcopal service, we understand, based on the Book of Common Prayer. The hearse is stopped in front of the cathedral now. And everyone stands at attention and in readiness and anticipation. The rear door of the hearst remains closed. Rich Lamb at the Washington National Cathedral for us describing what's happening at the moment as the arrival of George H.W. Bush to the Washington National Cathedral uh, is occurring. Members of the uh, family are in limousines behind the hearse, including former President George W. Bush. There are two busloads of family members, many members of the Bush family here in attendance. There were some 250 members of the extended family who paid their respects in the Capitol Rotunda yesterday. Quite an impressive sight to see. So we're in a hold pattern at the moment as we wait for everybody to get in place, including the family, so that uh, they can begin the process of removing the late president's casket and then carrying it into the Washington National Cathedral in Northwest Washington. CBS News Special Report, the death of George H.W. Bush. Here's correspondent Bill Rakoff. Good morning from Washington, which along with the rest of the country continues to observe a day of mourning for the 41st President George Herbert Walker Bush. Over the last 36 hours, Americans were able to pay their respects to the former president as his body lie in state at the Capitol Rotunda. We are now at the Washington National Cathedral where the casket of the president has just arrived in a hearse. It is still sitting in the hearse at this time. Members of the family contingent have also arrived at the National Cathedral. A military honor guard is outside and we are waiting for a short ceremony to begin to remove the casket and carry it inside. Joining me here to provide coverage is uh, WCBS reporter Rich Lamb from uh, New York who is here outside the National Cathedral, also joined by uh, CBS's Steve Dorsey at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, CBS's Steve Futterman in Houston where attention will shift later today as the president's body is taken back to Texas one last time. And our CBS News White House correspondent Emeritus Peter Mayer who covered the Bush administration, grew to be close with members of the Bush family in the administration, and he and his wife are actually attending this ceremony inside the cathedral. We will uh, join him a little bit later on to get his thoughts on today's service. Right now, we hear the military drums as family members are getting ready to uh, exit the vehicle. We see former President George W. Bush now getting out of his SUV. Rich Lamb, I'm going to have you take it from here and uh, give us the color of what's happening, if you would. Well, we're looking at uh, George W. Bush, number 43. This uh, straightened his tie and uh, made sure his jacket was buttoned uh, for the occasion. Obviously, he'll be the object of much attention and many pictures. And he is now walking uh, toward the back of the hearse with his wife, Laura. They are arm in arm. And uh, Jed just behind him, they, they, they stopped and... They, they stopped suddenly, and Jed almost ran into his brother. But uh, that's one of the dangers of a big family. So they're now forming a line so that they each uh, have a sight line the, on the hearse, uh, the back door of which uh, is open 
and a presidential seal has been affixed to that uh, back door of the hearse. These are emotional moments for the family. Uh, and now, military pallbearers have just marched up to the back of the hearse. They turn in unison to face each other. Their commander walks up. There is a little device that loosens the casket. It has been unhitched. The flag-colored casket now, flag-covered casket is at the back of the hearse. And the honor guard stands at attention. They await a command. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are standing by. Now the honor guard takes one step to the right. The casket is being slid out of the back of the hearse. Ever so slowly. The pallbearers now on both sides of the flag-draped casket of the late president. George H.W. Bush. All the members of the military here. Ruffles and flourishes. steps of the National Cathedral. The Joint Chiefs are walking up the steps of the cathedral. An American flag, a color guard, precedes that casket, the flag-draped casket of President George H.W. Bush to the bottom of the stairs. Now, step step by step. The honor guard carries that casket up the front stairs of the National Cathedral. As the contingent of military on both sides salutes. Step by careful step. They bring the casket toward the front door of the National Cathedral. The family behind it watching. And now they have reached very close to the top of the stairs. And here, the clergy come out 
to accept the mortal remains. With faith in George. Jesus Christ, we receive the body of our brother George for burial. Let us pray with confidence to God, the giver of life, that he will raise him to perfection in the company of saints. Deliver your servant, George, sovereign Lord Christ, from all evil, and set him free from every bond, that he may rest with all your saints in the eternal habitations, where with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray also for all who mourn, that they may cast their care on God and know the consolation of his love. Almighty God, look with pity upon the sorrow of your servants for whom we pray. Remember them, gracious God, in mercy. Nourish them with patience. Comfort them with a sense of your goodness. Lift your countenance upon them and give them peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The reception of the Bonnie. You heard the Most Reverend Michael Bruce Curry, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, and the Right Reverend Marianne Edgar Buddy, the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. With that, the clergy turns to enter the cathedral very slowly. The pallbearers carrying the casket of the late president reach the entrance of the cathedral. One step at a time, slowly making their way forward through the large doors. And into the narthex of the cathedral. The cathedral choir performing my house shall be called a house of prayer. And the Bush family members now just reaching the top of the stairs and entering the National Cathedral as well.
The musicians here today include the Cathedral Choir, the United States Marine Orchestra, and the Armed Forces Chorus. And there will be a series of anthems played as the procession makes its way into the cathedral nave. <laughs> Spaces for the family have been set aside. Facing the altar on the right-hand side of the church in the front row on the left-hand side, dignitaries starting with the former presidents and the current president, Donald Trump, former President Obama, former President Clinton, and former President Carter all in attendance. In the second row, the surviving former vice presidents, including the current vice president, Mike Pence, Joe Biden, we see Dick Cheney. We also see Dan Quayle, who served as Bush 41's vice president, and Al Gore, of course, who served as Bill Clinton's vice president. Looking at the former presidents now, at a shot of all four of them, they seem to be pensive. As Rich mentioned a little while ago, uh, President uh, Obama in particular has seemed to have been in a very thoughtful mood, very pensive mood, if you will. He's been taking a lot in. Sometimes you see his finger go to his chin as if he's thinking about something. Uh, President Clinton, a little bit more gregarious, as you might imagine, up until the time of the service. Uh, chatting people up. Now, former President Carter sitting with his wife quietly, and President Trump and his wife sitting quietly at the other end of the aisle. Now, former President George W. Bush and his wife Laura and the other Bush children are being escorted into the nave of the cathedral by Major General Howard, who has been with the family since they arrived in Washington. We see Bush sons Neil, Marvin and Jeb, daughter Doro, with their spouses, all making their way in. And again, they'll have a seat of honor in the front row to the right as you face the altar of the Washington National Cathedral. Foreign dignitaries in attendance include the former Prime Minister of Canada, Brian Mulroney. Former British Prime Minister John Major is here. The former head of the Kuwaiti government, which was in very much debt to the Bush administration for driving Iraq out of Kuwait in Operation Desert Storm. Now former President George Bush greeting the former presidents one by one, shaking their hands before taking his seat in the front row along with his wife, Laura. Short handshakes, maybe a clap on the back with, from Bill Clinton. And now flags are raised in the back of the nave as the bells ring at the cathedral. The casket of George Herbert Walker Bush has made it to the doors of the nave. And slowly the procession begins. A crucifix bearer, two acolytes, dressed in white robes, slowly making their way down three abreast. 
As the crucifix arrives, the people in the cathedral stand. That gold crucifix held on high. And the assistants showing as much precision as the military behind them. Behind the acolytes and the crucifer come the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Providing the honor escort for the casket as they have since he arrived in Washington two days ago. Members of the congregation standing and turning toward the rear of the nave. Behind the Joint Chiefs of Staff, members of the clergy. Former President Bush looking around the cathedral, taking it all in. On the other side, former President Trump, I should say current President Trump, excuse me, with a solemn look on his face. He too looking around, seeming to take in the entire experience. As the procession of clergy makes its way down the aisle, the Joint Chiefs having taken their seats. The casket of the former president still stands at the doorway to the nave. It's a long cathedral, and the head of the procession is just now making its way to the front. We see religious leaders of all faiths, Greek Orthodox, Muslim, Christian. I am the resurrection and I am the life, says the Lord. Whoever has faith in me shall have life, even though he die. And everyone who has life and has committed himself to me in faith shall not die forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my awaking, he will raise me up, and in my body I shall see God. I myself shall see, and my eyes behold him, who is my friend and not a stranger. For none of us liveth to himself, and none becomes his own master when he dies. For if we have life, we are alive in the Lord. And if we die, we die in the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's possession. Happy from now on are those who die in the Lord. So it says, says the Spirit, for they rest from their labors.
The Reverend Dr. Russell Levinson, Jr., who is the rector of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. Slowly now, the casket of the former president approaches the front of the church. Past his son, former President George W. Bush, and the rest of the Bush family. The military honor guard is now come to a halt before the chancel. Now slowly, one step at a time. Their polished shoes making a significant sound as they step across the wooden chancel. Slowly, the guard lays the casket upon its platform. Slightly bent over as they lower it down. Now slowly raising back up. Now beginning a slow turn. Members of all five branches represented, as is custom. Bush granddaughter Jenna, having a Kleenex to her eye. The Bush family said to be very emotional, who wouldn't be under a circumstance like this to begin with. Now the opening hymn. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven.
Let us pray. O God, whose mercies cannot be numbered, accept our prayers on behalf of your servant George, and grant him an entrance into the land of light and joy in the fellowship of your saints. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That was the very Reverend Randolph Marshall Hollerith. He is the Dean of the Washington National Cathedral. The crowd sits. Former President Bush noted during the hymn, uh, looked to be very emotional, did not sing much of that hymn, but rather stood there and uh, the look of just sorrow on his face. Now we will get readings uh, from the book of Isaiah in the 60th chapter, verses 1 to 5 and 18 to 20. Two of the Bush grandchildren will read. Mrs. Lauren Bush Lauren and Ashley Walker Bush as they take to the lectern. A reading from the prophet Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and a thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you by night. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, or your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. The word of the Lord. Ashley Walker Bush and her sister Lauren Bush Lauren, the son or daughters, I should say, of Neil and Maria Bush, reading those words from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. As they are escorted back to their seats, we'll hear the first of the eulogies for today. It is delivered by John Meacham, the presidential historian and author and close friend of the Bush family. He also spoke at the funeral of Barbara Bush earlier this year. He is escorted onto the chancel. Makes the sign of the cross as he passes the casket of the late president. bows slightly before the cross. 
and now makes his way to the lectern. Again, this is John Meacham. The story was almost over, even before it had fully begun. Shortly after dawn on Saturday, September 2nd, 1944, Lieutenant Junior Grade George Herbert Walker Bush, joined by two crewmates, took off from the USS San Jacinto to attack a radio tower on Chichijima. As they approached the target, the air was heavy with flak. The plane was hit. Smoke filled the cockpit. Flames raced across the wings. My God, Lieutenant Bush thought, this thing's gonna go down. Yet he kept the plane in its 35-degree dive, dropped his bombs, and then roared off out to sea, telling his crewmates to hit the silk. Following protocol, Lieutenant Bush turned the plane so they could bail out. Only then did Bush parachute from the cockpit. The wind propelled him backward, and he gashed his head on the tail of the plane as he flew through the sky. He plunged deep into the ocean, bobbed to the surface, and flopped onto a tiny raft. His head bleeding, his eyes burning, his mouth and throat raw from salt water. The future 41st President of the United States was alone. Sensing that his men had not made it, he was overcome. He felt the weight of responsibility as a nearly physical burden, and he wept. Then, at four minutes shy of noon, a submarine emerged to rescue the downed pilot. George Herbert Walker Bush was safe. The story, his story and ours, would go on by God's grace. Through the ensuing decades, President Bush would frequently ask, nearly daily, he'd ask himself, why me? Why was I spared? And in a sense, the rest of his life was a perennial effort to prove himself worthy of his salvation on that distant morning. To him, his life was no longer his own. There were always more missions to undertake, more lives to touch, and more love to give. And what a headlong race he made of it all. He never slowed down. On the primary campaign trail in New Hampshire once, he grabbed the hand of a department store mannequin asking for votes. When he realized his mistake, he said, never know, gotta ask. <laughs> you can hear the voice, can't you? As Dana Carvey said, the key to a Bush 41 impersonation is Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne. George Herbert Walker Bush was America's last great soldier statesman. 
a 20th century founding father. He governed with virtues that most closely resemble those of Washington and of Adams, of TR and of FDR, of Truman and of Eisenhower, of men who believed in causes larger than themselves. Six foot two, handsome, dominant in person, President Bush spoke with those big strong hands, making fists to underscore points. A master of what Franklin Roosevelt called the science of human relationships, he believed that to whom much was given, much is expected. And because life gave him so much, he gave back again and again and again. He stood in the breach in the Cold War against totalitarianism. He stood in the breach in Washington against unthinking partisanship. He stood in the breach against tyranny and discrimination. And on his watch, a wall fell in Berlin. A dictator's aggression did not stand. And doors across America opened to those with disabilities. And in his personal life, he stood in the breach against heartbreak and hurt, always offering an outstretched hand, a warm word, a sympathetic tear. If you were down, he would rush to lift you up. And if you were soaring, he would rush to savor your success. Strong and gracious, comforting and charming, loving and loyal, he was our shield in danger's hour. Now, of course, there was ambition, too, loads of that. To serve, he had to succeed. To preside, he had to prevail. Politics, he once admitted, isn't a pure undertaking. Not if you want to win, it's not. An imperfect man, he left us a more perfect union. It must be said that for a keenly intelligent statesman of stirring, almost unparalleled private eloquence, public speaking was not exactly a strong suit. Fluency in English, President Bush once remarked, is something that I'm often not accused of. <laughs> Looking ahead to the 88 election, he observed, inarguably, it's no exaggeration to say that the undecideds could go one way or the other. <laughs> and late in his presidency, he allowed that we're enjoying sluggish times but we're not enjoying them very much. <laughs> his tongue may have run amok at moments, but his heart was steadfast. His life code, as he said, was tell the truth, don't blame people, be strong, do your best, try hard, forgive, stay the course. And that was and is 
the most American of creeds. Abraham Lincoln's Better Angels of Our Nature and George H.W. Bush's Thousand Points of Light are companion verses in America's national hymn. For Lincoln and Bush both called on us to choose the right over the convenient, to hope rather than to fear, and to heed not our worst impulses, but our best instincts. In this work, he had the most wonderful of allies in Barbara Pierce Bush, his wife of 73 years. He called her Bar, the Silver Fox, and, when the situation warranted, the Enforcer. He was the only boy she ever kissed. Her children, Mrs. Bush liked to say, always wanted to throw up when they heard that. In a letter to Barbara during the war, young George H.W. Bush had written, I love you, precious, with all my heart, and to know that you love me means my life. How lucky our children will be to have a mother like you. And as they will tell you, they surely were. As Vice President, Bush once visited a children's leukemia ward in Krakow. Thirty-five years before, he and Barbara had lost a daughter, Robin, to the disease. In Krakow, a small boy wanted to greet the American Vice President. Learning that the child was sick with the cancer that had taken Robin, Bush began to cry. To his diary later that day, the Vice President said this, My eyes flooded with tears, and behind me was a bank of television cameras, and I thought, I can't turn around. I can't dissolve because of personal tragedy in the face of the nurses that give of themselves every day. So I stood there looking at this little guy, tears running down my cheek, hoping he wouldn't see. But if he did, hoping he'd feel that I loved him. That was the real George H.W. Bush, a loving man with a big, vibrant, all-enveloping heart. And so we ask, as we commend his soul to God, and as he did, why him? Why was he spared? The workings of Providence are mysterious, but this much is clear. The George Herbert Walker Bush, who survived that fiery fall into the waters of the Pacific three quarters of a century ago, made our lives and the lives of nations freer, better, warmer, and nobler. That was his mission. That was his heartbeat. And if we listen closely enough, we can hear that heartbeat even now, for it's the heartbeat of a lion, a lion who not only led us, but who loved us.
That's why him. That's why he was spared. John Meacham, the presidential historian, presidential biographer, and friend of the Bush family, bringing members of that family to tears over his words about not just George H.W. Bush, but his wife, Barbara Bush. Uh, Rich Lamb, uh, I know you were at the cathedral there and uh, had some very strong things to say. An imperfect man, he left us a more perfect union was a line that stuck with me. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, he described George H.W. Bush's World War II experience uh, in great detail. Uh, his uh, taking off from an aircraft carrier uh, in a bomber that he was piloting uh, and uh, running into a lot of uh, literal flack. Uh, he ran into some of that political flack later in his life, but in this case, uh, he knew that that uh, aircraft was going down, but he continued on to his target, which was a radio tower. Uh, and dropped his bombs and then uh, told his uh, told his crew members to hit the silk in other words parachute out of there and he turned the plane in such a way that they could bail out and then uh, only then did he bail out himself and apparently struck his head uh, on uh, on the rudder of the aircraft on the way down he's bleeding he hit the hit the water went way underneath uh, came back up jumped in a raft and at four minutes before noon, a submarine uh, popped up out of the ocean, uh, startlingly, uh, uh, but uh, rescued him. And uh, then he spent uh, the rest of his life wondering why he was spared. Uh, and then uh, Meacham says that basically he justified his rescue by touching many a soul, uh, by leaving us freer, uh, better, and nobler uh, and he, uh, he said, uh, underlying all of this was the heart of a lion, and you can still hear that heart beating now. Uh, and he said that uh, George H.W. Bush loved us, and that is the bottom line. And that heart beats through the hearts of his children and his grandchildren, all of them involved in service to their country and their communities in some form or fashion. It was an emotional speech. And uh, as this choir performs the anthem, The King of Love, My Shepherd Is, members of the family are taking time to share Kleenexes with each other and, and compose. Daughter Doro Bush particularly uh, moved by what Meacham had to say here. This is and CBS. I'm just, go ahead. No, just, I just wanted to say there was that one hilarious moment uh, when <laughs> he was in New Hampshire and reached out to a mannequin <laughs> to shake the mannequin's hand uh, and, and said, well, you, you never know, you've got to ask, you know, and, and you could see the reaction on, uh, on his son, uh, the ex-president's face, and he, they were all laughing heartily, and they were waiting for a moment to laugh because it has been so somber and so sad. There will be more moments on this uh, roller coaster, dare I say, uh, with some of the things coming up. A beautiful music being shared by the uh, Cathedral Choir. Let's listen in for just a moment.
And now a reading from Jenna Bush Hager, the daughter of President George W. Bush. A reading from Revelation to St. John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The word of the Lord. Jenna Bush Hager, the daughter of President George W. Bush and Laura Bush, delivering scripture from the book of Revelation. And as she passes her grandfather's casket, places her hand upon the flag. And now we'll have another eulogy, and this one is going to come from a fellow head of state for former President George H.W. Bush, Brian Mulroney, former Canadian Prime Minister, friend of the Bushes, and even fishing buddy of the late President. Mulroney takes a moment to bow before the altar. Do you remember where you were? The summer you left your teenage years behind and turned 20. Well, I was working as a laborer in my hometown in northern Quebec, trying to make enough money to get back into law school. It was a tough job, but I was safe and secure, and had the added benefit of my mother's home cooking every night. On September 2nd, 1944, as we have just heard so eloquently from John, 20-year-old Lieutenant George Bush was preparing to attack Japanese war installations in the Pacific. He was part of a courageous generation of young Americans who led the charge against overwhelming odds in the historic and bloody battle for supremacy in the Pacific against the colossal military might of Imperial Japan. 
That's what George Bush did the summer he turned 20. Many men of differing talents and skills have served as president, and many more will do so as the decades unfold, bringing new strength and glory to these United States of America. And 50 or 100 years from now, as historians review the accomplishments and the context of all who have served as president, I believe it will be said that in the life of this country, the United States, which is, in my judgment, the greatest democratic republic that God has ever placed on the face of this earth, I believe it will be said that no occupant of the Oval Office was more courageous, more principled, and more honorable than George Herbert Walker Bush. George Bush was a man of high accomplishment, but he also had a delightful sense of humor and was a lot of fun. At his first NATO meeting in Brussels, as the new American president, he sat opposite me, actually, that day. George was taking copious notes as the heads of government spoke. We were all limited in time. But you know, it's very flattering to have the President of the United States take notes as you speak. And even someone as modest as me <laughs> threw in a few more adjectives here and there to extend the pleasure of the experience. After President Mitterrand, Prime Minister Thatcher, and Chancellor Kohl had spoken, it was tur the turn of the Prime Minister of Iceland, who, as President Bush continued to write, went on and on and on and on, ending only when the Secretary General of NATO firmly decreed a coffee break. George put down his pen, walked over to me and said, Brian, I've just learned the fundamental principle of international affairs. I said, what's that, George? He said, the smaller the country, the longer the speech. <laughs> In the second year of the Bush presidency, responding to implacable pressures from the Reagan and Bush administrations, the Soviet Union imploded. This was, in my judgment, the most epical event, political event, of the 20th century. An ominous situation that could have become extremely menacing to world security was instead deftly challenged by the leadership of President Bush into the broad and powerful currents of freedom, providing the Russian people with the opportunity to build an embryonic democracy in a country that had been ruled by czars and tyrants for over a thousand years. And then, as the Berlin Wall collapsed soon thereafter, and calls for freedom cascaded across Central and Eastern Europe, leaving dictators and dogma in the trash can of history, no challenge, no challenge, assumed greater importance for Western solidarity than the unification of Germany within an unswerving NATO. But old fears in Western Europe and 
unrelenting hostility by the military establishment in the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact rendered this initiative among the most complex and sensitive ever undertaken. One serious misstep and this entire process could have been compromised, perhaps irretrievably. There's obviously no more knowledgeable or competent judge of what really happened at this most vital juncture of the 20th century than Chancellor Helmut Kohl of, of Germany. In a speech to a parliamentary commission of the Bundestag, Chancellor Kohl said categorically that this historic initiative of German reunification could never, ever have succeeded without the brilliant leadership of President Bush. Much has been written about the first Gulf War. Simply put, the coalition of 29 disparate nations assembled under the aegis of the United Nations, including for the first time many influential Arab countries and led by the United States, will rank with the most spectacular and successful international initiatives ever undertaken in modern history, designed to punish an aggressor, defend the cause of freedom, and ensure order in a region that had seen too much of the opposite for far too long. This was President Bush's initiative from beginning to end. President Bush was also responsible for the North American Free Trade Agreement, recently modernized and improved by new administrations, which created the largest and richest free trade area in the history of the world, while also signing into law the Americans with Disabilities Act, which transformed the lives of millions and millions of Americans forever. President Bush's decision to go forward with strong environmental legislation, including the Clean Air Act, that resulted in the Acid Rain Accord with Canada, is a splendid gift to future generations of Americans and Canadians to savor in the air they breathe and the water they drink and the forests they enjoy and the lakes, rivers and streams they cherish. There's a word for this. It's called leadership. Leadership. And let me tell you that when George Bush was President of the United States of America, every single head of government in the world knew that they were dealing with a gentleman, a genuine leader, one who was distinguished, resolute, and brave. I don't keep a diary, but occasionally I write private notes after important personal or professional events. One occurred at Walker's Point in Kennebunkport, Maine on September 2nd, 2001. Mila and I had been spending our traditional Labor Day weekend with George and Barbara. And towards the end, he and I had a long private conversation. My notes capture the moment. I told George how I thought his mood had shifted over the last eight years from a series of frustrations and moments of despondency in 1993 to the high enthusiasm that I felt 
at the Houston launch of the Presidential Library, and George W.'s election as governor in November of that year, to the delight following Jeb's election in 1998, followed by their great pride and pleasure with George W.'s election to the presidency, and perhaps most importantly, to the serenity we found today in both Barbara and George. They are truly at peace with themselves, joyous in what they and the children have achieved, gratified by the goodness that God has bestowed upon them all, and genuinely content with the thrill and promise of each passing day. And at that, George, who had tears in his eyes as I spoke, said, you know, Brian, you've got us pegged just right, and the roller coaster of emotions we've experienced since 1992. Come with me. He led me down the porch at Walker's Point to the side of the house that fronts the ocean and pointed to a small, simple plaque that had been unobtrusively installed just some days earlier. It read, C-A-V-U. George said, Brian, this stands for Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited. When I was a terrified 18 to 19-year-old pilot in the Pacific, those, those were the words we hoped to hear before takeoff. It meant perfect flying. And that's the way I feel about our life today. C-A-V-U. Everything is perfect. Barr and I could not have asked for better lives. We are truly happy and truly at peace. As I looked over the waters of Walker's Point on that golden September afternoon in Maine, I was reminded of the lines, simple and true, that speak to the real nature of George Bush and his love of his wonderful family and precious surroundings. There are wooden ships. There are sailing ships. There are ships that sail the sea. But the best ships are friendships. And may they always be. Former Canadian Pre Prime Minister, that is, Brian Mulroney, a close personal friend of the Bushes, shakes former President George W. Bush's hand as he makes his way back. You're listening to CBS News coverage of the state funeral for former President George Herbert Walker Bush. Next up, we'll hear another tribute from former Senator Alan Simpson from Wyoming, who dates his friendship back to the Bush family to the 1960s and one who is reportedly considered to be on the list for Bush's vice presidential pick in 1988. Relax, George told me I only had 10 minutes. <laughs> he was very direct about it. It wasn't even funny. <laughs> now, I first met my friend, my dear friend, George Bush, in 1962, when my father, Millward Simpson, was a member of the United States Senate and just elected. And I came back to Washington with Dad to settle on his new office, being vacated by one Senator Prescott Bush. 
George's father. Well, then we met again when my parents left Washington and sold their home to a brand spanking new congressman from Texas named George Herbert Walker Bush. So George and Barbara, mom and pop, did that sale on a handshake. Sound familiar? Then I came to the Senate in 1978, and soon after that, Ronald Reagan cornered me and asked me to support him for president. And I said I would, not knowing that my friend George would enter the fray. Hearing that, I called and I said, George, I want to tell you I'd love to help, but I already committed to Ronald Reagan. George's response? Well, Al, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I probably should have let you know sooner. And actually, a guy doesn't get very many calls from a friend who says they can't support him. Sound familiar? Of course it does. Because in George Bush's theme of life, during all the highs and lows, there was a simple credo. What would we do without family and friends? And when he became vice president, our friendship, our enjoyable friendship was refreshed and the four of us had many, many pleasant times together. Now my life in Washington was rather tumultuous. Uh, I went from the A socialist to the Z <laughs> and never came back to the A. In one dark period, I was feeling awful low and all my wounds were self-inflicted, all of them. And George called me early one morning, always early in the morning. <laughs> Country music playing in the background and he said, Aha, I see the media is shooting you pretty full of holes. Actually, he said it a bit more pungently than that. And he said, why don't we go up to Camp David? You and Ann come over and we'll have a weekend together. At that time, his popularity rating was 93%. Mine was 0.93%. And so off we went. The media, of course, all gathered as we headed to Marine One. And George said, now wave to your pals over there in the media, Al. And they didn't wave back. <laughs> so next morning, he's ratting through all the papers in the U.S., and he looks up and he said, Aha, here's the one I've been looking for. A picture of Barbara and Ann and George with his arm and hand on my back. And later, we're having a sauna. And I said, George, I am not unmindful as to what you are doing. You are propping up your old wounded duck pal. While you're at the top of your game, you reach out to me while I'm tangled in rich controversy and taking my lumps. And he said, yep. <laughs> there were staff members, Al, who told me not to do this. But Al, this is about friendship and loyalty. Sound familiar? Well, we have an awful lot of fun, too. Always a delight to be in the president's box at the Kennedy Center, off to a play at the National Theater of the Warner with the Bushes. 
And outside of the president's box one evening, there was a massive six-foot vase with an extraordinary glaze. I hope you know the difference between a vase and a vase. Thirty-five bucks. <laughs> now, George walked up to it and he said, Al, wait, I think that's Etruscan. I noticed that he said this blue-grayish glaze from that period, a clay that could only be found during that era. And I said, no, no, George. The patina there gives me the perception it was possibly older, perhaps of Greek origin, with that particular herbal paste before firing. Well, of course, people gathered around, mumbling about these expert observers. And Barbara and Ann finally came by and said, get out of here. <laughs> Both of you, get back in that box. Well, we did. Well, it was impressive for a while. And then, of course, one night, the four of us went to see Michael Crawford singing the songs of Andrew Lloyd Webber. All four of us were singing as we went back to the White House. Don't cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> and tidbits from Phantom of the Opera and other magic of Weber. And a few days later, he's getting hammered by the press for some extraordinarily petty bit of trivia. And suddenly he sings out, Don't cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> the press then wrote that he was finally losing his marbles. <laughs> now, these honored guests right here before us who have held this noble post know well of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. He was a class act from birth to death. He housed the strong sinews in mind and body gained from that extraordinary mother. We compared our mothers as velvet hammers of course, and certainly most awesome fathers. The history books will and are treating him most fairly, while uncovering some other powerful traits, his great competitiveness, his raw courage, and his self-discipline. Recall the Andrews Air Base conclave where congressional participants drafted a remarkable bill that dealt with two-year budgeting, entitlement reform, comprehensive and catastrophic health care, social security solvency, and much more. But it required a critical ingredient called revenue, translated into the word taxes, translated into the words read my lips. And the group went to George and said, look, we can get this package done, but we must have some revenue. And he said, I'll never forget, he said, what I've said on that subject sure puts a hell of a lot of heat on me. <laughs> and then they all said, yes, but we can get it done, and it will be bipartisan. And George said, okay, go for it, but it will be a real punch in the gut. Bob Dole then, a loyal warrior for George, took it back to the Senate, and we won a very strong bipartisan vote. And went over to the House where his own party 
turned on him, surely one of the main factors assuring his return to private life. But he often said, when the really tough choices come, it's the country, not me. It's not about Democrats or Republicans. It's for our country that I fought for. And he was a man of such great humility. Those who travel the high road of humility in Washington, D.C. are not bothered by heavy traffic. <laughs> and uh, he had a very serious flaw known by all close to it. He loved a good joke, the richer the better, and he'd throw his head back and give that great laugh, but he never, ever could remember a punchline. <laughs> and I mean never. So the punchline for George Herbert Walker Bush is this. You would have wanted him on your side. He never lost his sense of humor. Humor is the universal solvent against the abrasive elements of life. That's what humor is. He never hated anyone. He knew what his mother and my mother always knew. Hatred corrodes the container it's carried in. The most decent and honorable person I ever met was my friend George Bush, one of nature's noblemen. His epitaph, perhaps just a single letter, the letter L for loyalty. It coursed through his blood, loyalty to his country, loyalty to his family, loyalty to his friends, loyalty to the institutions of government, and always, always, always a friend to his friends. None of us were ready for this day. We mourn his loss from our own lives and what he was to each of us. That is so personal, so intimate, so down inside. It would have been so much easier to celebrate his life with him here. But he is gone, irrevocably gone. So now we have loosed our grip upon him, but we shall always retain his memory in our hearts. God has come now to take him back. We all knew on one unknown day he would return to his God. Now we give him up. We commend him to your loving hands. Thank you for him. God rest his soul. Former Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming, a longtime friend of George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Rich Lamb uh, at the National Cathedral, uh, just struck by uh, the personal nature of those remarks. And we heard not just from him, but from former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. And although working with each other in politics and in diplomacy, it broke through uh, and the bonds of friendship were evident in both of their remarks. Indeed they were. And we can say <clears throat> about the former Canadian Prime Minister, uh, he said 50 or 100 years from now, Historians will say no occupant of the Oval Office was more courageous, principled, and honorable than George H.W. Bush. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement. He went on to talk about uh, when the Soviet Union imploded, 
uh, and quoting Helmut Kohl, he said that uh, Helmut Kohl had told the Bundestag that uh, German reunification could never have happened without George H.W. Bush. You know, uh, he said when George, when world leaders thought about the United States when George Bush was president, he said they all knew that they were dealing with a distinguished, resolute, and brave leader. You know, he, uh, he said, uh, he, he got down to the point where he was uh, uh, with Bush at, at Walker's Point, uh, and he talked about a little plaque that had been recently installed there. And uh, it had the letters C-A-V-U on it. And, uh, and the president had led him down to this plaque. And uh, he told uh, the prime minister, the former prime minister of Canada, he said, uh, those letters represent ceiling and visibility mm. unlimited. He said. And which was a code word, by the way, that was used to share with family and friends the announcement of uh, the death of George Herbert Walker Bush last week. Right now, we're listening to uh, music from Ronan Tynan in the Armed Forces Chorus and U.S. Marine Orchestra. It's the last full measure of devotion. Let's listen. tenor Ronan Tynan in the Armed Forces Chorus, along with the United States Marine Orchestra and the last full measure of devotion. 
Now a highly anticipated eulogy from former President George W. Bush, who taps his father's casket twice on the way to the lectern. Here's the 43rd President of the United States. Distinguished guests, including our presidents and first ladies, government officials, foreign dignitaries, and friends. Jeb, Neil, Marvin, Darrow, and I, and our families, thank you all for being here. I once heard it said of man that the idea is to die young as late as possible. At age 85, a favorite pastime of George H.W. Bush was firing up his boat, the Fidelity, and opening up the three 300-horsepower engines to fly, joyfully fly, across the Atlantic with the Secret Service boats straining to keep up. At age 90, George H.W. Bush parachuted out of an aircraft and landed on the grounds of St. Anne's by the Sea in Kennebunkport, Maine, the church where his mom was married and where he worshiped often. Mother liked to say he chose a location just in case the chute didn't open. <laughs> in his 90s, he took great delight when his closest pal, James A. Baker, smuggled a bottle of Grey Goose vodka into his hospital room. Apparently it paired well with the steak Baker had delivered from Morton's. <laughs> to his very last days, Dad's life was instructive. As he aged, he taught us how to grow with dignity, humor, and kindness. And when the good Lord finally called, how to meet him with courage and with the joy of the promise of what lies ahead. One reason Dad knew how to die young is that he almost did it, twice. When he was a teenager, a staph infection nearly took his life. A few years later, he was alone in the Pacific on a life raft, praying that his rescuers would find him before the enemy did. God answered those prayers. It turned out he had other plans for George H.W. Bush. For Dad's part, I think those brushes with death made him cherish the gift of life, and he vowed to live every day to the fullest. Dad was always busy, a man in constant motion, but never too busy to share his love of life with those around him. He taught us to love the outdoors. He loved watching dogs flush a covey. He loved landing the elusive striper and once confined to a wheelchair, he seemed happiest sitting in his favorite perch on the back porch at Walker's Point, contemplating the majesty of the Atlantic. The horizons he saw were bright and hopeful. He was a genuinely optimistic man, and that optimism guided his children and made each of us believe that anything was possible. He continually broadened his horizons with daring decisions. He was a patriot. After high school, he put college on hold and became a Navy fighter pilot as World War II broke out. 
Like many of his generation, he never talked about his service until his time as a public figure forced his hand. We learned of the attack on Chichijima, the mission completed, the shootdown. We learned of the death of his crewmates, whom he thought about throughout his entire life. And we learned of the rescue. And then another audacious decision. He moved his young family from the comforts of the East Coast to Odessa, Texas. He and mom adjusted to their arid surroundings quickly. He was a tolerant man. After all, he was kind and neighborly to the women with whom he, mom, and I shared a bathroom in our small duplex. Even after he learned their profession, ladies of the night. Dad could relate to people from all walks of life. He was an empathetic man. He valued character over pedigree. And he was no cynic. He looked for the good in each person, and he usually found it. Dad taught us that public service is noble and necessary, that one can serve with integrity and hold true to the important values like faith and family. He strongly believed that it was important to give back to the community and country in which one lived. He recognized that serving others enriched the giver's soul. To us, his was the brightest of a thousand points of light. In victory, he shared credit. When he lost, he shouldered the blame. He accepted that failure is a part of living a full life, but taught us never to be defined by failure. He showed us how setbacks can strengthen. None of his disappointments could compare with one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a young child. Jeb and I were too young to remember the pain and agony he and mom felt when our three-year-old sister died. We only learned later that dad, a man of quiet faith, prayed for her daily. He was sustained by the love of the Almighty and the real and enduring love of her mom. Dad always believed that one day he would hug his precious Robin again. He loved to laugh, especially at himself. He could tease and needle, but never out of malice. He placed great value on a good joke. So I chose Simpson to speak. <laughs> On email, he had a circle of friends with whom he shared or received the latest jokes. His grading system for the quality of the joke was classic George Bush. The rare sevens and eights were considered huge winners, most of them off color. George Bush knew how to be a true and loyal friend. He nurtured and honored many, his many friendships with a generous and giving soul. There exist thousands of handwritten notes encouraging or sympathizing or thanking his friends and acquaintances. He had an enormous capacity to give of himself. Many a person would tell you that dad became a mentor and a father figure in their life. He listened and he consoled. He was their friend. I think of Don Rhodes, Taylor Blanton, Jim Nance, Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
and perhaps the unlikeliest of all, the man who defeated him, Bill Clinton. My siblings and I refer to the guys in this group as brothers from other mothers. <laughs> he taught us that a day was not meant to be wasted. He played golf at a legendary pace. I always wonder why he insisted on speed golf. He was a good golfer. Well, here's my conclusion. He played fast so that he could move on to the next event, to enjoy the rest of the day, to expend his enormous energy, to live it all. He was born with just two settings, full throttle, then sleep. <laughs> he taught us what it means to be a wonderful father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He was firm in his principles and supportive as we began to seek our own ways. He encouraged and comforted, but never steered. We tested his patience. I know I did. <laughs> but he always responded with the great gift of unconditional love. Last Friday, when I was told he had minutes to live, I called him. The guy answered the phone, said he, I think he can hear you, but he hadn't said anything for most of the day. I said, Dad, I love you and you've been a wonderful father. And the last words he would ever say on earth were, I love you too. To us, he was close to perfect, but not totally perfect. His short game was lousy. He wasn't exactly Fred Astaire on the dance floor. <laughs> the man couldn't stomach vegetables, especially broccoli. <laughs> and by the way, he passed these genetic defects along to us. <laughs> Finally, every day of his 73 years of marriage, Dad taught us all what it means to be a great husband. He married a sweetheart. He adored her. He laughed and cried with her. He was dedicated to her totally. In his old age, Dad enjoyed watching police show reruns, the volume on high, <laughs> all the while holding Mom's hand. After Mom died, Dad was strong, but all he really wanted to do was hold Mom's hand again. Of course, Dad taught me another special lesson. He showed me what it means to be a president who serves with integrity, leads with courage, and acts with love in his heart for the citizens of our country. When the history books are written, they will say that George H.W. Bush was a great president of the United States, a diplomat of unmatched skill, a commander-in-chief of formidable accomplishment, and a gentleman who executed the duties of his office with dignity and honor. In his inaugural address, the 41st President of the United States said this, we cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home, his neighborhood, and town better than he found it. What do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we are no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? 
Well, Dad, we're going to remember you for exactly that and much more. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that Dad is hugging Robin and holding Mom's hand again. Former President George W. Bush. Taking his seat and receiving warm applause and chiding from his brother Jeb. Almost as if to say you couldn't hold it in, could you? But there's not much of a dry eye in the Bush family. Rose, the former president now sitting back and having a chuckle, but you can tell he's very much overcome by the moment. Saying the best son and father a guy could have. Rich Lamb is at the Washington National Cathedral. Your thoughts? Wow. Uh, that was just uh, powerful. I mean, uh, he was he was so overcome by emotion there he got bent over uh when when he uh when he lost his voice there uh and uh, he was talking about of course uh it, his uh, his sister uh who had died uh as a, a very young child i think three or four and that was the tremendous a tremendous grief for uh, for his parents and and when he said uh that uh, he envisions his father hugging Robin again and holding mom's hand again. He, he just couldn't get through it. It was a very difficult uh, punchline on a, on, a, on a really wonderful tribute to, to his father. But I delivered mean, he, in a way, I would think, that uh, his father would have wanted with an appropriate dose of humor and uh, a, a measured look at the man, both... Uh, his successes and even some of his foibles. Right, and uh, and he did start out uh, by saying, the idea is to to die young as late as possible. And he talked about his father loving to uh, crank up that cigarette boat that he has with uh, apparently three three hundred power outboard engines on it and just crank it uh, into the Atlantic. And we've seen uh, a lot of the uh, adventures that that brought on. And at 90, he said he parachuted out of an aircraft. Of course, uh, those, those pictures are so famous. You see him doing it repeatedly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the, the joke was that the first time he had a parachute out of an aircraft, it wasn't much of a pleasure at all. And that, that was the, the, terrible, um, the terrible moment in the Pacific. And now we're going to uh, proceed with the service. The Gospel will be read from the book of Matthew by the very Reverend Randolph Monsher Hollerith, who is the Dean of the National Cathedral as the assembly rises to hear the words. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. You're listening to CBS coverage of the state funeral for George H.W. Bush. Almighty God of all comfort, console us, of all light, strengthen us, of all love, inspire us to love you and to love those you send our way. Amen. Well, please be seated. It is a tremendous honor to follow these speakers and especially someone whom I admire so much, our 43rd president, sir. Your uh, father always welcomed my visits and never made me feel rushed and always said thank you for coming. Never made me feel like I was going on too long. Your mother... <clears throat> usually said, good sermon, too long. Um, I got your email. <clears throat> You're a lot like your mother. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, children of God, when death comes as it does to us all, life is changed, not ended. And the way we live our lives, the decisions we make, the service we render, matter. They matter to our fellow human beings, to this world that God has given to us, and they matter to God. And few people have understood this as well or lived their lives as accordingly as President George Herbert Walker Bush. Now hear what I said, lived it, not earned it or strived to achieve it. It was as natural to him as breathing is to each of us. President Bush was a good man, a decent man, a godly man, full of grace and love and equality of absolute necessity to enter the kingdom of God, humility, grounded in a desire to serve his God and all God sent his way. How do I know this? Because for nearly a dozen years, uh, my wife, Laura, and our children, and I, we have laughed with him, we have fished with him, President Bush brought up riding in fidelity. We had that pleasure as well. The Secret Service was behind us. He was at full throttle. I saw many of them reaching for what I thought were protective armor, but then I realized as they followed the President, they were actually crossing themselves. <clears throat> We've been blessed to share meals and tears and moments of silence and prayers in times of great strength and times of great weakness. Never, not once, did I witness anything but care and concern for those around him. The job of a pastor, a priest, an imam, a rabbi, when dealing with someone he or she is called to serve, is to call on them to look to God, to do the right thing, 
to serve others, and to love. And President Bush made my job so easy. Our lesson from the Hebrew Scriptures remind us that God is light, and the President reflected that light his whole life through. He once said, I'm a man who sees life in terms of missions defined and missions completed. And we recall with delight when he reminded America and her citizens of his mission and ours to be points of light with but one aim, to leave our world better than we found it. I have a, a political cartoon of the 41st president. I keep it in my desk with caricatured big ears. He's uh, sitting in his desk, he's looking at his watch, and he's saying to himself, communism is dead, the wall is down, apartheid is falling, Mandela is free, the Sandinistas are ousted, Germany is reuniting, the Cold War is over, I've returned my calls, and heck, it's not even lunchtime. <laughs> we sometimes forget all that President Bush did for us, in large part because he preferred to shine not upon himself, but to shine to others. Several years ago, President Bush gave me this uh, plaque. And on the back's a note, Russ, a good friend gave this to me some years ago. It may be of help to you in some way. It reads simply, preach Christ at all times. If necessary, use words. It remains on my desk as a reminder that faith means more than words. Jesus Christ, for George Bush, was at the heart of his faith. But his was a deep faith, a generous faith, a simple faith in the best sense of the word. He knew and lived Jesus' two greatest commandments to love God and to love your neighbor. The president loved and served not just some, but all that God sent his way. He lived his own adage that tolerance is a virtue, not a vice. He respected and befriended Christians of every denomination, as well as Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Sikhs. His comrades were from every nation and race. Yes, he was a Republican, but for him, political parties were but a line in the sand to brush away in times of the greater good of working toward his goal for all of us to be that kinder and gentler nation. The gospel that Dean Haworth just read for us a moment ago reminds us that Jesus told his followers to be the light of the world so that the world could turn their hearts toward God and toward others. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so was President Bush. His life was defined by his faith and his service that are worthy of all those made in God's image. In September of 1990, President Bush spoke to those gathered outside those doors for the dedication of this great cathedral. And he pointed inside to that magnificent rose window right there from the outside. And he spoke these words, from where we now stand, the rose window high above seems black and formless to some, perhaps. But when we enter, we see it backlit by the sun. It dazzles in astonishing splendor and reminds us that without faith, we too are but stained glass windows in the dark. The president understood that even in the darkest of nights, 
Things can be transformed if handed over to the redemptive power of the Almighty. No one on that first Good Friday expected Easter Sunday, but it came. It came because the light that brought creation into being also brought life from the grave. We call that resurrection. Only days ago, I was humbled, along with members of the President's staff, his outstanding and loyal medical team, so many friends, Sully, who I believe has gotten more press than the President in the last few days, <laughs> loving members of his family who called in, who spoke with him throughout the day, and as our 43rd President just said, inspired his last words, words of love. Sitting with us was someone the President liked to call his little brother, James Baker and his wife, Susan. As I said, there have been wonderful hugs and kind words throughout the day, kisses throughout the day. Toward the end, Secretary Baker and I were sitting on the sofa next to one another a few steps away, and he whispered to me, you know, that man changed my life. A bit later, Secretary Baker was at the foot of the President's bed. And toward the end, Jim Baker rubbed and stroked the President's feet for perhaps half an hour. The President smiled at the comfort of his dear friend. Here I witnessed a world leader who was serving, a servant who had been our world's leader. And what came to mind was Jesus. On that last night before his own crucifixion, having said everything there was to say, he wrapped a towel around his waist and without words, he washed his disciples' feet. As Jesus finished, he said, I've set an example for you. Do as I have done. Serve one another. By this, the world will know you're my disciples if you serve and if you love one another. At the end, we all knelt. We all placed our hands on the President. We said our prayers together. And then we were silent for a full, long measure as this man who changed all of our lives, who changed our nation, who changed our world, left this life for the next. It was a beautiful end. It was a beautiful beginning. For a moment, but a moment only, that dear point of light we know as George Herbert Walker Bush dimmed, but it now shines brighter than it ever before has. And now this godly man, this servant, this child of God, is in the loving arms of Barbara and Robin and the welcoming arms of our Lord who embraced him with his divine love. Some have said in the last few days, this is an end of an era, but it does not have to be. Perhaps it's an invitation to fill the hole that has been left behind. The President so loved his church, he loved the Episcopal Church, he so loved our great nation, 
He so loved you, his friends. He so loved every member of his family. But he was so ready to go to heaven. And heaven was so ready to receive him because he lived those two great commandments. If you want to honor him, and if you call yourself a daughter or a son of God, then love God, love your neighbor. There's no greater mission on planet Earth. My hunch is heaven, as perfect as it must be, just got a bit kinder and gentler, leaving behind that hole for you and me to fill. How? Preach Christ at all times. If necessary, use words. So, Mr. President, mission complete. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to your eternal home, where ceiling and visibility are unlimited, and life goes on forever. Amen. That was Reverend Dr. Russell Levinson, Jr., the rector at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. A lot of talk about servitude there in that homily, which is how George H.W. Bush often saw himself. And a very poignant moment, Rich Lamb, when he talked about James Baker, his longtime friend, colleague in Washington, rubbing the former president's feet. You could see... James Baker loses composure recalling that moment. It must have been a powerful time. It surely must have been. It was powerful to watch. And, uh, you know, he considered Jim Baker uh, his little brother. And, uh, and Jim Baker and he had met uh, on the tennis court, but they developed a lifelong friendship. And obviously, uh, Baker has said that, uh, that this man changed uh, his life. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it just was. Um, it was an extraordinary. Uh, it was an extraordinary homily, and he the, he said that the that the late president was filled with grace and love, uh, and that he loved all that God sent his way. Uh, he said that uh, uh, as as the president was dying again, Jim Baker was rubbing the president's feet, and he. He compared that to uh, the Bible story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples the night before he was to be crucified. Well, he also said that uh, this man is now in the arms of Robin and Barbara. Uh, he said, uh, at the end, my hunch is that heaven just got a bit kinder and gentler. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You're listening now to uh, Christian uh, contemporary artist Michael W. Smith singing his uh, one of his uh, big hits called Friends. He was very popular with George H.W. Bush and George W. Uh, Bush and also sang at the funeral for Billy Graham recently. Let's listen.
Michael W. Smith singing Friends along with assistance from the Armed Forces Chorus and the United States Marine Orchestra. Now the assembly will rise and speak the words of the Apostles' Creed. In the assurance of eternal life given at baptism, let us proclaim our faith and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now a performance of the Lord's Prayer from the Irish tenor, Ronan Tynan. Thy kingdom come. 
the incomparable Ronan Tynan and the Lord's Prayer. Now the Reverend Canon Jan Naylor Cope, the provost at the National Cathedral, will offer the general prayers. For our brother George, let us play, pray to our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am resurrection and I am life. Lord, you consoled Martha and Mary in their distress. Draw near to us who mourn for George and dry the tears of those who weep. Hear us, Lord. You wept at the grave of Lazarus, your friend. Comfort us in our sorrow. Hear us, Lord. You raised the dead to life. Give to our brother eternal life. You promised paradise to the thief who repented. Bring our brother to the joys of heaven. Our brother was washed in baptism and anointed with the Holy Spirit. Give him fellowship with all your saints. Comfort us in our sorrows at the death of our brother. Let our faith be our consolation and eternal life our hope. Father of all, we pray to you for George and for all those whom we love but see no longer. Grant to them eternal rest. Let light perpetual shine upon them. May his soul and the souls of all the departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. And now, the Navy hymn, Eternal Father, Strong to Save, from the Armed Forces Chorus and the Marine Orchestra.
The Navy Hymn, Eternal Father Strong to Save. And now, the commendation for George H.W. Bush. Once again, the congregation in the National Cathedral rises. Give rest, O Christ, to your servant with your saints. Where For sorrow and pain are no more, neither sign but life everlasting. You only are immortal, the creator and maker of mankind, and we are mortal, formed of the earth, and to earth shall we return. For so did you ordain when you created me, saying, You are dust and to dust you shall return. All of us go down to the dust, yet even at the grave we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Amen. with your saints, for a sorrow In your hands, O oh, merciful Savior, we commend your servant, George. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a sheep of your own fold, a lamb of your own flock, a sinner of your own redeeming. Receive, George, into the arms of your mercy, into the blessed rest of everlasting peace, and into the glorious company of the saints in light. Amen. And now the blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. The blessing of God Almighty the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on you and remain with you in this world in which we live this day and forevermore. Amen. Let us go forth in the name of Christ. Thanks be to God. The congregation remains standing as the clergy takes their place. The acolytes and Crucifer about halfway down the aisle. And the closing hymn here at the Washington National Cathedral is one we've heard before, For All the Saints. way off of the chancel. Pastor Levinson from St. Martin's Pats, the former president's casket as he leaves. Shake of the hand of President George W. Bush on the way out. And nods of thanks and gratitude from the Bush family as the members of the clergy pass by.
shot of the five surviving presidents, George W. Bush along with Obama. Carter, Clinton, and the current president, Donald Trump. service keeping time with expectations. We thought it would take about two hours. It's gone just a little over that. The honor guard now approaching the chancel. You can hear their footsteps on the wooden floor as they march up the steps alongside the casket. Once again, they face in toward the casket. Lean over gently. Grasp the handles. And with one fluid movement, they lift to the carrying position and turn to face the rear of the nave. Left. To the edge of the chancel, former President Bush joined by his contemporaries, all putting their hands to their hearts along with the First Lady and former First Ladies, members of the Bush family doing so as well. As the military guard slowly carries the casket down the four steps of the chancel to the marble floor of the Washington National Cathedral. And as the congregation begins to sing, the American flag, the U.S. flag, makes its way down the aisle, now followed by the casket of George Herbert Walker Bush. Passing the current commander-in-chief, Donald Trump, Mr. Trump looking at the casket, hand on his heart, Across the aisle, former President George W. Bush doing the same, an emotional look on his face. Last but not least, the presidential flag with the seal of the chief executive. And the procession now making its way down the aisle. And behind the casket, the Bush family steps out into the aisle. Former President Bush again acknowledging the other former commanders-in-chief and the current commander-in-chief. Now as they make their way down the aisle, acknowledging friends, colleagues, associates in the audience, this grand cathedral 
with its high arches and truly a national cathedral with the flags of each of the states flying from the transepts. Now, President Trump, First Lady Melania Trump, the Vice President, Mike Pence and his wife, leaving through a side entrance. And the casket of George Herbert Walker Bush leaves the Washington National Cathedral stepping into the narthex of this grand building. Outside, the honor guard stands at attention. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are in place. The hearse is in place. My colleague WCBS's Rich Lamb is standing outside the cathedral and has a full view of what's happening there, Rich. Well, we can tell you that the uh, honor guard out here, the, the military honor guard has been uh, has been in place now for about 20 minutes uh, and uh, of course we see the the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, this is uh, it's very rare to see them standing at attention at any ceremony uh, certainly at a funeral this is uh, one of those very rare moments to see the Joint Chiefs uh, standing together at attention to salute uh, the Commander-in-Chief or a former Commander-in-Chief the 41st president of the United States. We await uh, the appearance of the casket outside here. There is a, a bit of a pause at the moment. The hearse stands at the ready. It's a little bit of a contrast to some presidential funerals where they've actually had horse-drawn caissons uh, to move uh, the presidential remains. Not in this case. It's a it's a black hearse. The door on the back of it uh, closed at the moment. And now we see some of the, uh, a couple of the military folks at the, at the door have just shouldered their weapons. Apparently on a command. But as of yet, the casket remains inside the cathedral structure. This is one of those truly very moving and emotional moments for the family. Uh, there is a certain finality to a casket leaving a church after a religious funeral that really strikes you if you've ever lost a loved one and have uh, been in a, a funeral where a loved one is being celebrated. It is just one of those moments that is pretty difficult emotionally. This uh, was a grand celebration. Many tributes delivered to George H.W. Bush. There were some light moments, some laughs, many poignant moments uh, during the course of, uh, of the remarks that were offered. One that stands out for me was when the president, uh, number 43, was talking about his father 
and saying that uh, all he wanted to do is hold Barbara's hand again. Hmm. And at the very end of his remarks, was overcome with emotion that was so strong that he actually doubled over but got through, got through the words. Rich Lamb standing outside the Washington National Cathedral, inside the cathedral, attending the services of former CBS White House uh, correspondent uh, Peter Mayer, who joins us by phone. Uh, Peter, again, good to have you here. Uh, you covered the Bush administration. Uh, you grew close to the family. Uh, give us your impressions of today's service. Well, to paraphrase one of President Bush's uh, favorites, kind and gentle final tribute, if you will, Bush biographer John Meacham probably left real spirit of the day describing George Herbert Walker Bush as America's last great soldier statesman, a 20th century founding father. Uh, the lightest touches of the day came from former Senator Alan Simpson. He was one of President Bush's uh, closest friends. He called him a class act from birth to death. But um, as we just heard from Rich, the emotional high point was President uh, George W. Bush's eulogy as his voice broke uh, when he remembered a great and noble man, the best dad. His words brought the only, the only applause of the entire service. And Peter, I'm going to interrupt you as ruffles and flourishes sounds. The body of the late president about to be removed from the cathedral. Let's listen. Cathedral. An American flag just before them, just behind the casket, you can see former President George W. Bush leading the family. On both sides, military officers standing at attention, a salute to a former president and commander-in-chief. So now the family walking down the steps behind the casket, that flag-draped casket of President George H.W. Bush by the military honor guard. The Coast Guard band, by the way, playing this theme, the hymn, Holy God, We Praise Thy Name. And now 
bearers have come down from the steps and they're making a turn toward the back of the hearse. They arrive at the back of the hearse, the flag-draped casket of President George H.W. Bush turn in unison toward the casket. And now they'll slowly place it in the back of that hearse. see the family standing on the steps watching this final moment after the funeral here at the National Cathedral. The American flag and the presidential flag wave gently in a breeze. The pallbearers now have placed the casket in the hearse and have turned and are marching in lockstep away from the hearse as the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States and the family look on. It's very, very quiet in this moment. The rear door of the casket is still open. Everything done here with great precision. And now that door, with the presidential seal affixed on the inside, is gently closed. The family gets the signal to move. President George W. Bush saying hello to those nearby, walking toward his transportation. And we see some of the other family members coming out of the National Cathedral now. They will be going to their vehicles and lining up for a ride to Joint, Joint Base Andrews. And there remains of George H.W. Bush will be flown down to Texas. I want to go back to Peter Mayer inside the cathedral. Peter, I was struck, particularly during the uh, remarks by uh, former Prime Minister Mulroney of Canada, uh, they were brothers in arms in some of the most tumultuous times when it came to diplomacy, and he talked about NATO and, and that sort of thing. But they also became good friends. They became fishing buddies. You covered that point of time, and Peter, I, I just want to know, was that friendship evident uh, at the time to uh, people outside the circle, if you will? Oh, absolutely, Bill. Uh, both uh, President uh, Bush, 41, and Ronald Reagan we're uh, very close to uh, Canadian Prime Minister Mulroney. Uh, the Mulroneys and the Bushes got together every U.S. Labor Day uh, at Kenny Bunkport for, uh, as he said, fishing. And, you know, he, he talked about uh, the, the dignity and honor of George H.W. Bush uh, in, only, in, the, in the way that only a, a fellow leader who was, you know, in the uh, trenches of diplomacy could do so. Uh, it was a, quite a, a moving tribute, and of course he was the only uh, uh, speaker who was not uh, a U.S. official who spoke here today. 
Peter, also uh, Senator Alan Simpson's comments uh, were just uh, spot on and on the mark for this type of occasion. If you're talking about a man who believed uh, in former President Bush and the dignity of the office and the solemnity of the job, but also uh, had the sense of humor to match, I thought, uh, I, I thought Simpson was just on the mark today. Well, I covered him uh, when I was uh, the Senate correspondent. And uh, he was always, as we say in the news business, good copy. But what a quote. Uh, he said that uh, President Bush was a class act from birth to death, and you always would have wanted him to be on your side. He said that, uh, you know, when he was caught in a controversy long ago, so long ago, Bill, that I'm uh, straining my memory to remember exactly what the episode was. It was uh, then President Bush who called him up and said, Hey, bring your wife Ann and let's go to Camp David for the weekend and uh, have a decent time. And that uh, that that really uh, brought home the idea of the guy who has your back, and that was something that George H. W. Bush valued overall. As uh, you know, many people know you. Again, you covered this administration among others, but you know, through the job and and afterwards, you know, there were personal touches uh, made to you and your family uh, by the Bushes, as there were to other reporters. But uh, you stayed in touch uh, in a fashion over the years. What was uh, is there a memory or something that you take out of this service today that really squares up with how you want to remember this man? Well, there were a number of things that that came to mind here, Bill. Um, I think that uh, my biggest post-presidential uh, contacts with President Bush uh, came when uh, I was the media pool reporter when he and former President Clinton went to all the tsunami countries. Uh, at one point, we were on one of those interminable flights across the Pacific, and uh, his aide, uh, his, his chief of staff, actually, uh, loyal Gene Becker, uh, came back at, in the back of the plane and said to me, you know, uh, President Clinton had gotten off at the last stop, and she said, you know, President Bush wants you to know there's only one bed on the plane, and if you'd like to stack out in it, uh, go right ahead, but he wants you to know that he'll be sitting in an easy chair right next to the bed. <laughs> I, uh, I decided that uh, I uh, would not be able to catch any Z's in that kind of a situation. But that's, the way he, <laughs> that's the way he was, uh, just generous and so kind. And I, uh, you know, I just, that's an indelible memory for me right there. And also, um, we talked in the middle of that flight, just he and I all alone, about the fragility of life and the widespread death that we have seen uh, all over Asia and in India. And, uh, you know, we, and I, I thought, how ironic. Here I am talking about the delicacy, the, the fragility of life with a man who also almost lost his over the Pacific in World War II and who, for his whole life, as we heard today, grieved the loss of his little daughter, Robin. Um, he was an amazing man. Uh, and I, you know, there were adversarial times, don't get me wrong, and I don't want to give anybody the impression that we were buddies because it was just a matter of mutual respect that continued until the summer before last when he invited uh, my wife and me to come see him at uh, Kenny Bunkford in Maine. And when I retired from CBS News, Bill, uh, he sent me a very nice letter. He said he heard that I'd retired. And I wrote down my favorite quote from that letter. I can tell you from firsthand experience that when you leave a big job, there's an exciting life thereafter.
That's tremendous. And certainly you are living that best life. And uh, we're remembering a man who just seems uh, to have been an inspiration to anybody he touched, including, and I thought this was a terrific speech from the other day by Vice President Mike Pence, made it so intensely personal about the notes that uh, the uh, former president uh, gave to his uh, uh, gave to Pence's son, who was uh, deployed as and got his wings as an aviator. But uh, this was this was the measure of the man, if you will. So, Peter, I know it sounds like they're going to move you out, but uh, as the hearse begins to move, I'd like some final thoughts from you, if you would. Well, uh, as I said a, a bit earlier, this was a uh, kind and gentle send-off, uh, to borrow his favorite words, for uh, the 41st President of the United States. And... Uh, I can tell you that there is just such a bipartisan cross-section of people here from all walks of life in Washington, people who were on the staff at the White House, people who were in the military and traveled with him around the world, and of course, uh, people like Senator Bob Dole, who was such a dear friend of his, and I uh, cherished the opportunity to have a chance to talk to him, and he said, look at this outpouring. We are grateful to you for spending some time with us with your memories and your observations on the day. CBS News White House correspondent emeritus, Peter Mayer. As always, sir, you're welcome anytime. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. You could have called me a has-been if you wanted. <laughs> Never. Not ever. But in any case, uh, thank you again for the time. We appreciate it. What an honor to be able to sit in there, Rich Lamb, and uh, to be able to see that uh, firsthand. Uh, yeah. But uh, this is the type of guy that George H.W. Bush was. Again, he wasn't pals with the news media, not by any stretch of the imagination. But as Peter mentioned, it was a mutual respect. Uh, where he had uh, you know, respect for some of the people. And, and again, he wasn't friends with all of them. Not all of them were afforded this respect, but uh, uh, Peter was one of the ones that uh, benefited from that. Well, you know, I was out interviewing uh, some, uh, some people the other day, and a 14-year-old, think about this, a 14-year-old told me that he wanted to come and pay back the respect uh, that uh, that he saw in in this president. So, I mean, if you do the math, that, that means that George H. W. Bush was 80 when this kid was born. So think about uh, the power of the coverage. And we're watching now as the uh, as the motorcade begins to leave the front of the National Cathedral here, uh, and uh, and so the service, which as you mentioned, went about two hours, but it was it was quite a celebration of a life. You know, there's some mourning there. There were some very emotional moments. Uh, one where uh, President uh, George W. Bush, number 43, uh, got to the very end of his remarks uh, and started talking about how he th he th thought that uh, now uh, that that uh, that he was hugging his daughter Robin, who had died, and holding Mom's hand again, and and it was such an emotional moment uh, you, that he doubled over with emotion and then got a hold of himself and and uh, and finished off those remarks and then when he got back to the pew as you pointed out uh, was was being razzed by his brother Jeb and and joking about it a little bit but uh, but he delivered a, a magnificent tribute uh, to his father today it was uh, all in all it was a really very moving uh, funeral service and again as you say former senator Alan Simpson was uh, was really um, was really wonderful uh, again, he said that, uh, as Peter had said, the, the quote was, he was a class act from birth to death. 
But he also talked about uh, uh, about uh, number 41's great competitiveness, his great courage. And, and a quote from him uh, was, when the really tough choices come about, it's about the country and not about me. Uh, and he said that uh, he, he joked that, uh, that President George H.W. Bush never, ever uh, could remember a punchline. He said he, he really loved humor, but he, and he laughed very hard, but he could never, ever remember a punchline. And then when uh, number 43 got up, he said, my father really enjoyed a joke. And that's why he asked Alan Simpson to speak. And that got a, a big laugh. From, he got a payback right there. Exactly right. Steve Dorsey is on Capitol Hill for us, who's been watching the ceremony as well. Wanted to get your thoughts. Well, I think it was a moment of reflection for a brief time in political history in Washington where there was, uh, in recent history, some bipartisan moments of, uh, of accomplishment. Uh, where the president uh, led members of his own party, but throughout his time at the White House, he also led moments of unity with the other party. Uh, I think you can see that relationship in the in the crowd of people that uh, were there, thousands of people, more than 3,000 people, packed inside that beautiful National Cathedral with Rich Lamb and Peter Mayer, uh, marking some of the most important and, and poignant moments from folks like his son, former President George W. Bush, uh, and his allies, including uh, Brian Mulroney from Canada. And right now, this uh, motorcade that left... Uh, the National Cathedral is passing through Massachusetts Avenue, now entering Rock Creek Parkway on its way uh, about five minutes into this 30-minute drive to Joint Base Andrews, where another brief ceremony will take place involving uh, the family, which is being escorted in this motorcade behind the hearse, including mm -hmm. uh, former President George W. Bush and uh, First Lady Laura Bush inside that first SUV, uh, followed by two other buses carrying family and another bus carrying former staff, White House staff, uh, for uh, the first President Bush. I think it's also uh, worth noting the President was there. Uh, he uh, made little interaction, I think, with, with uh, his contemporaries uh, and with the other Presidents, uh, the First Lady and and. Uh, the president did exchange some pleasantries with uh, Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama, whom they were seated next to. They left the ceremony at 1.14 by motorcade, just before uh, the casket of President Bush uh, was returned to the hearse. They arrived back at the White House about eight minutes ago where the president strolled the colonnade before entering the Oval Office. One a significant presence here when we talk about foreign dignitaries and uh, world leaders that have come to pay tribute, in addition to uh, Canadian government officials, is another U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia. And that's significant because the, the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. who left the country after the killing of a Saudi dissident and writer to the Washington Post in the opinion section, Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey at the Saudi consulate there. Uh, after he left Washington back in October, he has returned. Uh, Prince Khalid bin Salman now back in Washington. He paid tribute to his relationship, uh, the U.S. relationship at least, between uh, our country and Saudi Arabia. 
that developed, especially during the first Gulf War. He is accompanied by Saudi Foreign Minister Adel al-Jubir. And that's important as, uh, of course, we've heard over the last 24 hours growing reaction on Capitol Hill here from especially Senate leaders condemning what they believe, according to the CIA, the role uh, that Saudi Arabia had in orchestrating at the highest levels the death of, of Khashoggi. So this is an important moment, I think, for uh, Capitol Hill, where we saw for the final time the casket and remains of former President George H.W. Bush leave the presence of Congress, where he served as a Texas congressman. He presided over the Senate as vice president in the Ronald Reagan administration, departing Capitol Hill this morning and then arriving at the National Cathedral for that funeral service, that beautiful some two-hour funeral service, now en route to Joint Base Andrews. Well, he will head shortly to Houston. Bill. Steve Dorsey on Capitol Hill. Some words from George W. Bush. We've been talking a lot about of what he's had to say about his father. Let's listen. The man that the idea is to die young as late as possible. <laughs> At age 85, a favorite pastime of George H.W. Bush was firing up his boat, the Fidelity, and opening up the three 300 horsepower engines to fly, joyfully fly, across the Atlantic with the Secret Service boats straining to keep up. At age 90, George H.W. Bush parachuted out of an aircraft and landed on the grounds of St. Anne's by the Sea in Kennebunkport, Maine, the church where his mom was married and where he worshipped often. Mother liked to say he chose the location just in case the chute didn't open. <laughs> and we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that Dad is hugging Robin and holding Mom's hand again. And the president getting, again, a bit of a ribbing from his brother Jeb uh, for not holding it together there at the end, but good-natured right to the end, and that sense of humor so famous in the Bush family showing through there at the end of an emotional speech by uh, George Herbert Walker, Bush's son, the president of the United States, number 43. So the motorcade is on its way to Joint Base Andrews, and uh, the, from there we'll be flown to Texas. We are continuing our coverage here of the state funeral for former President George Herbert Walker Bush from CBS News. I'm Bill Rakoff in Washington. I'm joined by Rich Lamb at the Washington National Cathedral. Also, Steve Dorsey uh, at the U.S. Capitol and in Houston, Texas, Steve Futterman, who's been covering the events out there and the uh, center of attention will be back on you later this afternoon. Steve, can you uh, tell us a little bit about what we can expect once the flight arrives back home in Texas for the president? Well, there will be an arrival ceremony at Ellington Field. We will hear ruffles and flourishes. Hail to the chief. And then. The body will be driven through some of the streets of Houston to St. Martin's Episcopal Church. That's the church of the Bush family, and uh, that's where the body will be brought. It will be 
uh, placed in front of the church inside, inside the chapel, and there it will lie in repose overnight. People here in Houston who want to pay their respects will have to brave uh, the nighttime uh, uh, weather and uh, walk inside. I'm sure they are going to definitely take advantage of it. We expect to have people throughout the night walk by, pay their respects. Thousands are sure to take advantage of that. And then, of course, tomorrow, the final memorial service, the final uh, service for George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, some of it will be similar as today, but it will be more family and friends, people who are from the Houston area, less of the dignitaries, although there will be some here. That memorial service will take place tomorrow morning, and then the body will be taken by train, all this planned by George Herbert Walker Bush will be taken by train, a train that's been named after him for tomorrow, and it will be taken by train to College Station, Texas. That's the campus of Texas A&M at the Bush Presidential Library. He will be laid to rest, and they will have, we are told, a 21 Navy jet flyover. No one can remember a flyover with 21 uh, Navy jets to signify a 21-gun salute. It will be in the missing man formation, so one of those jets will stray up into the air away from the other 20 to signify the missing man who is George Herbert Walker Bush. I want to say one thing historically though, Bill, about today's service. What we saw inside the National Cathedral today is something that's never happened before and probably historically will never happen again. We had a former president delivering a eulogy for his father, another former president. And of course that was probably the most moving part of the service as George W. Bush's voice cracked, it broke. You know, when John Adams died in 1826, his son, John Quincy Adams, was the current president. But because of the way information traveled back then, by the time John Quincy Adams found out his father had died, John Adams had already been laid to rest. So what we saw today has never happened before and probably will never happen again. Steve, as you were speaking, the motorcade uh, and the procession uh, passed by the World War II Memorial on 17th Street, crossing the mall. Uh, and what a moment there as a military honor guard was stationed there as well. And as the motorcade went by, they rendered salute and honors uh, as uh, the uh, hearse passed and members of the Bush family passed. From there, the procession uh, will swing around onto Main Avenue and then pick up uh, what's known locally as the Southeast-Southwest Freeway or uh, Interstate 695 out the Suitland Parkway. It will cross Pennsylvania Avenue once again and then head to Joint Base Anders in through the Maryland Gate, we're told, at which point uh, it'll pull up to the presidential 747. And as you've pointed out, Steve, uh, a different designation because it's yes. not Air Force One because the president's not on board. That's right. Any plane that the president's on becomes Air Force One. He could be on a Cessna jet, and that would become Air Force One if he's on it. This plane, it is part of the presidential fleet, but it's being called SAM-41, SAM-41, Special Air Mission 41, in honor of the 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush. And uh, uh, a very nice, I think, a, a nice... Nice idea that either the Air Force came up with, the White House came up with, whoever came up with it, a very, very good idea. And that plane, SAM-41, will fly from Joint Pace Andrews to Ellington Field, and that will complete its duty as it's transported the body of George Herbert Walker Bush to Washington and now back to Houston. 
We've been talking an awful lot during this broadcast about the Bush children, and we think about former President Bush, 43, uh, of course, Jeb Bush, Neil, Marvin, and daughter Doro, but the grandchildren are playing a role, too, and they're coming into their own. Uh, we've seen some of them more prominently than others. Jenna Bush Hager is a journalist on broadcast television. There are others who are doing their thing in uh, nonprofits and other services and things like that, but uh, they had a chance earlier to sit down with two of the Bush grandchildren, Pierce and Lauren, uh, and I thought it was a pretty nice conversation to hear from them talking about what their grandfather meant to them, and I'd like to play a portion of that conversation for you now. I'm sorry. Here we go. It was just really peaceful, and it was so clear to me, Nora. There was just a moment, a five-second moment, and it was so clear that his soul had left his body and his, you know, my, my grandfather, Gampy, as we call him, was no longer there. And there was no doubt in my mind that he was up in heaven, um, being uh, united with his maker and obviously being reunited with um, our grandmother, Ganny, and his daughter, Robin, and other loved ones. So it was really just a really peaceful, peaceful moment. He said in a letter in 1984, it's a funny thing, when you get older, even if you have an exciting life surrounded by interesting people and having a chance to meet all the world leaders, even with all that, what counts is family and love. We love you already more than tongue can tell. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that says it all. I mean, you know, he lived that exciting life surrounded by world leaders and had really interesting jobs and um, and yet he was very much grounded in his family and in the sense of love um, and kindness for those around him and um, that was true that's not lip service you once got a very important letter from him once <laughs> after you had gotten into some big trouble right yes yes when I just graduated from college and I mm -hmm. <laughs> I wrecked his I wrecked his his boat um, on the rocks in a very gentle way. Fidelity, his fidelity, famous, his famous boat. The next night, um, I also got a lashing from my grandmother, who um, showed more. She was always loving, but showed more of a tough love than my grandfather. And I could see in his eyes, he could feel how, um, you know, embarrassed I was. How. Um, sensitive, you know, the, 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 my grandma's words were, were kind of hitting me. Mm -hmm. And that evening when I went to dinner and I came back home, there was this amazing note and it was addressed on the envelope. It said, you know, to my main man, Pierce. <laughs> I just remember walking upstairs in the big house and just bawling right when I saw that note. First of all, for my grandfather to make it upstairs <laughs> was really hard mm -hmm. at that time. But then the note was just so typical of Gampy. It said, you know, Pierce, I remember days when I could do no, no right. But then I would go to bed, and the next day the sun would embrace me, and all would be okay. You're a good man. You got a bad bounce. All is, all is okay. Life goes on. I love you more than Dunn can tell, something like that. Um, and Ganny does too, Gampy. And it was just one of those notes <laughs> that... You know, you're almost thankful that the boat incident happened <laughs> so that you can treasure that because it's so valuable. You knew that you, you just needed that encouragement. You'll bounce back. Totally, mm -hmm. totally, 100%. What do you hope the country learns from the life he lived? I think, you know, he, his big line as president was a kinder, gentler nation. 
and I do think that is what it boils down to. That's what he wanted for this country, it's what he wanted for relationships and um, the world is a kinder and gent gentler world. Lauren Bush Lauren there, uh, who married Ralph Lauren's son, hence the name, and of course her brother Pierce. And uh, I heard that story about the fidelity, uh, Steve Futterman, uh, a couple of times over the past few days, but I have never heard quite an emotional telling as I did yeah. right there with Nora O'Donnell from CBS this morning. And But, you know, we saw glimpses of this over the past few days with others, and I think if you go back to what Alan Simpson said in the funeral, you saw the same thing. Here's Simpson was talking about, uh, you know, having taken it over the chin and being sucked up in some controversy. And he did have some controversial things to say over the years. But I guess in a particularly down moment, uh, you know, the president uh, came around and said, look, man, I've got your back. And, you know, when he faced probably his, and it is a humiliation to be a sitting president and be ousted from office. It hasn't happened often. It happened to George Herbert Walker Bush, happened to Jimmy Carter. The, the president before that it happened to was Herbert Hoover. It doesn't happen that often. So it was a bit of a humiliation when he lost to uh, Bill Clinton in 1992, yet he took it uh, graciously, uh, wasn't happy. Let's not, uh, let's not... <laughs> Uh, try to sugarcoat it, but uh, he took it with the class. He accepted it. That's the way the American system works. And again, in the end, he became friends with the man who delivered that humiliating defeat in 1992. He and Bill Clinton became very, very close in the end. No question about it. Rich Lamb joins us from the National Cathedral where the service concluded just a short time ago. And we didn't mention it at the time because I, I, I thought my eyes saw it, but I wanted to make sure that my eyes saw it. There was a very tender moment uh, that's worth talking about as a sidebar between uh, former President Bush, 43, and former First Lady Michelle Obama. Uh, it's been well documented, Rich, that uh, these two have grown close over their appearances over the years, and much was made uh, during the funeral for John McCain in the very same place when they almost sat in the same row together where there was a moment where uh, George W. Bush uh, playfully offered Michelle Obama a piece of candy, and that scene actually repeated itself this morning as the former president entered the cathedral. He reached over and did the same thing again. Well, you know, and, and it's remarkable, and uh, I, I, was, uh, I had read uh, that Michelle Obama was supposed to, supposed to have been in Paris promoting her new book, uh, and uh, clearly, uh, you know, people in life, you discover, don't die at convenient times. And, uh, and, and so she had to change a lot of plans and, uh, and uh, sort of blow up her tour, which, which clearly, uh, you know, this, this would be the priority. Uh, but, uh, but at the same time, it displays an affection for the Bush family that uh, uh, is remarkable. You know, when you, when you think about uh, the political divides in this country, as you looked up and down the rows of, of the presidents there, uh, and and their spouses, uh, you know, the things that have been said back and forth, uh, even among them, uh, all seem to have been laid aside. And here was a spiritual moment, and and they could all look to uh, George H. W. Bush. Uh, you know, there's an ideal that uh, that that ha was really given life today, given words uh, and spoken of. And uh, yes, they talked about uh, he was he was imperfect. Certainly, all of us are. Uh, but uh, uh, this man really really lived an I an idea. 
uh, and, uh, and, and the idea was uh, that, uh, that he wanted to be a kind, uh, gentle, classy, dignified uh, as a president. Uh, I, was, I was interested to watch uh, some of the reactions. For, uh, I, I couldn't read uh, President Bush's reactions. Uh, I, I mean, when you, it, at times uh, I couldn't, but, but I'll tell you, uh, uh, you know, at the, at the moment, I can, I can looking back on, on uh, some of the uh, shots that we saw from, from the no, no, I'm watching it on a monitor outside, obviously. I'm out, outside, of the, uh, outside of the cathedral. I was, I was, you know, I was able to oftentimes see that uh, he, was, uh, he was very emotional. Uh, but but I, I would say that uh, uh, at, at some moments I, I really couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't read what, what uh, the current president was was thinking uh, at, at times he had his arms crossed I thought mr. mr. Trump w was listening to what was going on and 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 not I don't know what what he, what he was absorbing yeah. uh, it was hard to judge it is and, and you you want to be generous when you're reading body language and that sort of thing so I'm always hesitant to do that but you know they've always taught us that that sign of arms crossed meant a sort of uh, a distancing of yourself from whatever message is there so uh, I'll leave that for the experts and I won't certainly get into it but back to the moment when we talked about Bush and Obama uh, you know much has been made about the fact that former President Bush 41 and Bill Clinton got along so famously afterwards uh, but again this candy moment with George W. Bush and Michelle Obama at the McCain funeral. And then there's another iconic photograph that uh, is actually one of my favorites. Uh, it goes back to the dedication of the uh, Smithsonian Museum of African History, uh, American History and Culture on the National Mall. It's a picture of Michelle Obama bringing George Bush in in an embrace from behind. Uh, and both of them with such a smile on their face. And to your point and to the points that others have made the whole way along, uh, you know, <laughs> there are lights in the moment when we think that there's a lot that div divides us. There's certainly a lot more that brings us together as Americans, as, as a human, and that sort of thing. Steve Funderman, let's talk a little bit about that. And, you know, one reason we, we've all tried to figure out, and, of course, these presidents are the only ones who understand what it's like to be president. So there's a, a mutual understanding of the, the nature of the job, the difficulty of the job, and that brings them together naturally. But one thing with Barack Obama and George W. Bush, you may recall it was on Barack Obama's watch that, uh, watch that Osama bin Laden was uh, killed uh, in Pakistan. When that happened, the first person outside the closed group that was aware of it that Barack Obama wanted to contact and tell him before it made the headlines was George W. Bush. George W. Bush was in a restaurant here in Texas. Uh, Barack Obama phoned him, got hold of him, and told him that uh, Osama bin Laden had been killed. He felt that George W. Bush being the man who was in charge when 9-11 took place should be the first to know and he wanted him to know before uh, it was made public and I think that has brought them together there was a a very moving event a couple of years ago when some Dallas police officers were killed and uh, uh, President Obama came down here and George W. Bush was uh, sitting next to uh, him and the, 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 the two first ladies were there as well you can see that I think that's grown over the years it's a mutual respect and of course Again, 
they understand the difficulties of the job. They understand uh, what it's like to be president, the good parts and the bad parts. Steve Dorsey, uh, you cover politics as well as the rest of us and have been on the Hill for a lot of this stuff. And politics does tend to divide, and there's a certain game that you have to play in politics. But as we were talking earlier, and I was talking with some other people, I mean, these people go in with good intentions. I don't think anybody genuinely wants to do harm. And generally speaking, they do want to try to find some common ground. So some great lessons being learned through this week. Perhaps politicians are people too, Bill. And they go in, as you said, with the best intentions. Sometimes they don't always follow through uh, with their plans. Um, but certainly uh, many, if not most, go into public service to serve the public. But, uh, Bill, I want to I point out one other thing uh, during this, this funeral service was obviously the music. How spectacular that was. Rich Lamb, Peter Mayer can testify to this. Uh, and I want to point out specifically Ronan Tynan, that Irish tenor, that classical singer from County Kilkenny. He had such an important role in shaping music for the White House. He's performed for previous presidents, including uh, Bill Clinton. <clears throat> he has performed in the past for uh, former President George H.W. Bush, and he was also with him at his final night giving a final performance uh, on his deathbed moments before he died Friday night, according to his friend Jim Baker, who told the New York Times that, believe it or not, the president was mouthing the words to a rendition of Silent Night uh, that Ronan was singing to the former president. He himself, with his own amazing story, uh, born with a congenital deformity affecting both of his legs below the knee, he was later uh, amputated, both of those legs removed, uh, and he had since become a doctor specializing in sports injuries and uh, making his own prosthetics before uh, gaining fame here in the U.S. as one of the Irish tenors, not until his late 30s, uh, and then working his way up and continuing uh, his, his work here in the U.S. and back in Ireland. So, you know, certainly... Uh, uh, a funeral service made for the radio almost, Bill. Almost. going to testify to that. I had the great pleasure of meeting Ronan Tynan many years ago. And, uh, again, this is a situation, Rich Lamb, where you know Ronan Tynan well for many, many years. Uh, uh, he was a fixture at the Yankees game, so with his beautiful voice, uh, a bad joke uh, and uh, some regrettable comments led him to losing the gig. But once again, uh, it's another instance, like Alan Simpson, it's like his grandson Pierce, uh, Ronan Tynan gets the call, and uh, the president stays faithful. You know, it's uh, George H.W. Bush to the rescue again, and it's just a, re a remarkable thing when you think about it. And the, the, the point was made uh, that, uh, you know, after what, what happened in World War II to him when when uh, he was blown out of his bomber uh, into the Pacific and then rescued by uh, by a submarine and he spent uh, days wondering why he was spared and the others in the plane uh, you know had had died and and wondering what what God had in store for him and and uh, it was said that he spent the rest of his life uh, showing what God uh, had in store for him and that he worked really hard to justify his survival out there you know why me why did i survive and and he did uh, he you know we we talked we we were watching uh, as uh, as his son said that he was uh, the best dad you could possibly have 
he said he was always in constant motion, never too busy, though, to, to stop and, and uh, talk to you. Uh, a genuinely optimistic man. Uh, and he said that he valued character over pedigree. Uh, and, and, he's, and his father was a son of Greenwich, Connecticut, where pedigree can mean an awful lot. Uh, and, but he did a lot of learning during his life as well. I love that line that he chose character over pedigree. It was one of my favorite lines from the service. Rich Lamb uh, from our affiliate WCBS in New York joining us at the Washington National Cathedral. Again, joined by Steve Futterman in Houston, where the focus will shift later on today as the body of the late president is flown there. Steve Dorsey's on Capitol Hill, and I'm Bill Rakoff. CBS News coverage of the state funeral for George Herbert Walker Bush. So let's set the stage where we are right now as we approach 2 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, the body of the late president is almost to Andrews Air Force Base. We are told the advance team is already here. We see the honor guards in place on the tarmac at JBA. Uh, see uh, uh, guards with both the American flag and the presidential flag. Uh, there are airmen standing in place. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are also in place. It's not as quite a windy day as it was when uh, the body of... Uh, H.W. Bush arrived a couple of days ago, um, but there's still a bit of a breeze, and it's certainly much colder than it was uh, when they arrived here uh, back on uh, Monday. It was a uh, rather mild day in the nation's capital. Temperatures in the 60s. We are struggling to get to around 40-ish, depending where you are around the district and its environs today. Uh, they will go back to Houston, Texas, and again, there will be more uh, services to talk about there. But now, as we see uh, looking to the south end of the tarmac, uh, see the U.S. Capitol Police and the motorcycle escorts now pulling onto the tarmac, a District of Columbia police car signaling the arrival of the uh, funeral procession. And now we start to see the advance limos and the hearse carrying the casket of George Herbert Walker Bush now pulling onto the tarmac. And this is going to be a ceremony that we've seen before. We've seen it in Houston. We saw it on the arrival here. And we also saw it to a fashion at the U.S. Capitol where the body of the late president lie in state for almost two days. Now the hearse pulling around. And we'll make a circle in front of the presidential aircraft, tail number 29,000. It will serve as Special Air Mission 41 uh, in honor of the late president. Again, uh, when the president himself, the current president, is not on board, that aircraft does not carry the designation of Air Force One. Uh, so it often takes on those special air mission designations. And again, the 41 number in honor of the 41st president of the United States. And now the hearse slowly pulling up. to where the military honor guard will receive the body to be placed onto the aircraft. A member of the military signaling for the hearse to come to a stop using hand signals. And now a full wheel stop on the black Cadillac ambulance with the presidential seal affixed to the side. American flags mounted to the front of that hearse. Behind the hearse, two tan SUVs with former President George W. Bush, his wife Laura, and other members of the Bush family. And behind that, buses carrying more members of the Bush family.
And slowly, the back door of the hearse is opened. Members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as they have been all along, serving as an honor guard along with their spouses. Inside the hearse, the flag-draped casket of George H.W. Bush, waiting to be removed once again. It will be carried by the military honor guard to a waiting hydraulic lift truck that is also emblazoned with the presidential seal, sitting directly behind the wing of the presidential aircraft. It will be raised and taken in through a midsection door of the aircraft. We're told that seats were removed so that the casket could sit where family could approach. Now the military honor guard begins its march toward the hearse. Members of the family now gathered in place to watch. We see the children of George Herbert Walker Bush and some of the grandchildren. Dora Bush, Hope, Marvin and Neil, Jeb Bush, and now the former president stepping out with his wife from an SUV flat in an overcoat. Again, a chilly day out on the tarmac. And now the family walking toward the hearse. The honor guard is in place. Major General Michael Howard has been escorting the family. is one of the manners of the military district of Washington. And it's been his job over the past several days to shepherd the former president and the family through the various events he's been by their side throughout and will continue to be so through the end of the services tomorrow. And now with the family in place, the military honor guard sidesteps toward the hearse Hearses, or I should excuse, uh, should say that the casket is now brought out. The members of the honor guard Reason! have it by the handle. As arms are presented and hand salutes are raised, ruffles and flourishes, and once more, hail to the chief. JBA, Joint Base Andrews. The military guard continues to stand with the casket at the rear of the hearse. 
until the honors are rendered. Guests watching this ceremony, members of the Joint Base Andrews staff, leadership, and members of the details, the United States Secret Service, the Points of Light Foundation, the Desert Storm Memorial, the Library Advisory Council, former White House staff, U.S. Army Golden Knights, whom the former president parachuted with, staff from Camp David. And now slowly, sidestepping the honor guard, brings the casket into the open. Side by side, heel to heel, and a forward face, and then a right face. Now led by the American flag, the casket of George Herbert Walker Bush prepares to leave Washington for the final time being carried toward the presidential aircraft. Following the casket, a Navy sailor carrying the presidential seal dark blue flag with an American eagle and the E Pluribus Unum banner atop. in cue with the music. Holding at shoulder height as the casket is placed into the hydraulic lift that will carry it up to the door to the aircraft. As the order arms is delivered, the families 
of George Herbert Walker Bush now make their way toward the presidential aircraft led by Bush 43. A very serious and studious look on his face. He's accompanied by his wife and his brothers and sister and their families as they make their way toward the aircraft. The hydraulic lift is raised and the casket of the former president will be received. And I don't know, Rich Lamb, but uh, you get the sense that looking at the president's face here, while some others were smiling, he was taking it all in. One last trip up the steps that he's so familiar with from his time as commander-in-chief, but also recognizing that uh, his father is going home and leaving this town that he was such a part of for so, so many years for the final time. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it compares in some ways uh, to the moment uh, at the church door when you walk out. Uh, it, it just, it all, I think it all comes together and it falls upon you uh, as a loved one uh, what's happening here. Even though it was evident uh, that, uh, that uh, George H.W. Bush was at the end of his life, we certainly know, uh, and it was clear that he had died on Friday, it's that, it's that final departure. And, th and in this case, you have a, a departure from a town which uh, has meant so much uh, to the father and the son uh, as presidents. Uh, you know, it just, to see him leave for the last time, uh, especially on a, on a jet, which, you know, you would just take a look at it, and of course it's only Air Force One when the sitting president is on it, uh, but uh, it looks like Air Force One. It is Air Force One from time to time, uh, and uh, it, it just brings all of that crashing down, I think. All, all of those moments that they spent uh, as chief executive of the United States, as commander-in-chief, all of those responsibilities that both of them had. You know, the, the son uh, in the 9-11 attack, the father, uh, when we were talking about the first Gulf War there. Uh, you know, they were both wartime presidents, in, 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 and uh, it is uh, a, distinguished, a, a distinguishing mark that they probably never wanted, uh, and especially uh, the father, who had been in war, knew what it was like, and and wanted nothing to do with it again, in all likelihood, at least if my uncles are any, any measure of that, that none of them wanted to even talk about what happened in World War II. But, uh, you know, it, certainly when, when, you, when you look at the pensive face uh, of uh, George W. Bush, uh, probably a lot of that is going through his mind. One would think so. Steve Dorsey on Capitol Hill. Uh, I saw a lot of the same looks on members of Congress uh, over the past uh, couple of days as they paid their respects to uh, George H.W. Bush in the Capitol Rotunda. And you got to wonder what this does to the tone in Washington, if anything. Is it a temporary thing? Is there a spirit that carries through, particularly in light of the fact that uh, nobody wants to mention it at the moment, but we have a, uh, a funding fight that's coming up here in the next week as they desperately try to keep a government shutdown from happening before the end of the year. Of course, a very divisive uh, funding fight, too, being really led by the current president, President Trump, who is pushing for billions of dollars for a southern border wall. Another very divisive issue. But, Bill, I think this serves as a reminder that... This is a president who tried his best to put character front and center. Uh, and this is something that could remind lawmakers in Washington to put substance over politics. 
And this is not the only time this year that we've we've heard this been preached. We've heard this uh, play out when we remembered the life of the late Senator John McCain, um, who also tried to reach across the aisle and work to advance the causes of this country, especially in key moments like keeping the government open, like protecting our veterans. Uh, these are all issues that were important both to McCain and to former President George H.W. Bush, and certainly one of his legacies that will be remembered here in Washington as we reflect on his on his life and also his service to this country. And some Steve Futterman have wondered, and I even had somebody tell me yesterday, they wonder that with the passings of uh, people like John McCain and George Herbert Walker Bush, are we slowly losing the people that valued that character, that valued that civility in government, or uh, are there others who are going to rise up and take their place uh, as the discussion moves forward? Well, I mean, we, we've heard throughout our history there have been moments of uh, amazing discord similar to what we're having right now and somehow the u.s is resilient and the politicians find a way to uh, have that pendulum go back in the other direction so obviously we can hope it's going to be that way and then someone will rise up without mccain without uh, uh the the presence of a of a george herbert walker bush uh so i think probably we will have someone do that but uh, it, it was i will say this uh it was a remarkable uh lesson in watching body language today, watching that front row there with President Trump, Melania Trump next to them, the Obamas next to them, the, the Clintons uh, the next to them, the Carters. It was, uh, it was very interesting, and I'm sure everyone's going to have their analysis of what it meant and what it didn't mean, but it, it was quite a remarkable scene with what the country's been going through the last two years to see all those men together. But again, George Herbert Walker Bush led the way. He wanted Donald Trump to be there today. He did not want him not to be there. There was a sense that the Bush family and, and George Herbert Walker Bush in particular felt, particular felt that by having everyone together, it showed the unity, the continuity of the republic, and it does. What say you about civility, Rich Lamb? I mean, uh, it was also pointed out to me that uh, this proves that there's a lot more that uh, unites us than divides us as Americans, and so maybe we ought to take heart at that sort of thing. You know, I, I think it's true, and uh, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, you, you get a really warm feeling about the nation, just the majesty uh, of, of, this, of this whole event. Uh, gives you the sense that the, that this place uh, is still on top of its game. I mean, just the, the beauty of the timing of everything, so precise, and uh, and just to watch the military moves, amazing. Uh, and, and I just wanted to bring up uh, the former uh, Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney when he when he talked about uh, the Soviet Union imploded, and and then talked about the fall of the wall and a celebration that took place when a wall was destroyed. I, I have to wonder what was going through President Trump's mind at that point, uh, the big promoter of the wall, if you will. Uh, what, what must he have been thinking? Uh, it was a, to me, it was a very interesting moment, and there's no way to know, and we probably never will unless he tweets.
<laughs> yeah, and uh, that'll be interesting to see if he has an uh, opportunity to do that. They have called at the White House what we call in the business a lid in terms of uh, his movements during the day, which means we don't expect any further movement or official activity at the White House. He won't be moving anywhere, uh, but that doesn't mean that he won't have executive time where he's got access to the phone. So it'll be interesting to see what he says. But, Rich, I mean, there, all, all through this process, there have been uh, moments where they talked about unity and bringing together and the qualities of leadership. And while I don't know that any of it was necessarily uh, intentional shade, it was a reminder of how, uh, you know, uh, many people view leadership in this country. Uh, absolutely. And I think that there, were, uh, there was a lot of food for thought there. The question is, who's sitting down at the table to, to uh, partake? Uh, uh, is anybody listening who ought to be listening? Uh, I, these are questions that you really can't answer, but, but time may tell. You know, you, I, I, you know, all I can think of uh, are the days just after 9-11. Uh, if you were in New York... Uh, it was remarkable. People held the doors for each other. They were polite. You saw somebody that you didn't, you know, and, and, and you came together. That lasted about six weeks. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, and then New York got back to being uh, what we love New York for being. Right. And it's not that, you know, not negative at all, but it's just sort of that attitude, that uh, that swagger that it has. And But that's another part of it, too, is that, uh, you know, we're a resilient people, and we get back. Uh, to the things that we know. Um, Steve Futterman, uh, this is going to turn back over to you in about three and a half hours. Uh, let's walk through the next 24 hours, because if you look at this as, a, uh, as almost as if a football game, it's been a four-day event. Tomorrow begins the fourth quarter, if you will, and as a sports fan, I don't think the former president would mind the analogy. No, in fact, uh, last Sunday, the Houston Texans, they were playing here in Houston. It was the uh, a bit more than 24 hours after George Herbert Walker Bush had died. They had this beautiful salute to him uh, at the uh, stadium where they were playing uh, uh, last Sunday. He was a big sports fan, always loved to show up. Uh, the Astros, I guess, were his favorite team, but the Texans weren't far behind. But let's talk about what happens the next 24 hours. The plane, SAM 41, will take off momentarily from... Joint Base Andrews. It will arrive in approximately three hours at Ellington Field here in Houston. From there, they'll have another arrival ceremony. The salutes will be given. Hail to the Chief will be played. Ruffles and flourishes. Then the body will be brought in the motorcade to St. Martin's Episcopal Church, the church that the Bush family has attended for many, many years, where Barbara Bush's funeral service took place. There'll be an arrival ceremony there. The body will be taken inside the church. There it will lie in repose overnight throughout the night. We're talking about midnight, 1 a.m., late tonight as well. People from the Houston area will be allowed to walk past and pay their respects, and we expect a very large turnout. That will end early tomorrow morning, I think at 6 or 7 a.m., and then they will prepare for the final memorial service, the last goodbye in the church for George Herbert Walker Bush. There'll be another service, somewhat similar today, but more, less with the dignitaries, with the national figures, with world leaders. This will be people who were much closer to George Herbert Walker Bush, more family, friends. There'll be some dignitaries, but not as many. Then after that service, the body will be put on board a train. They will take the body by train. A special engine that has been named in honor of George Herbert Walker Bush will take the body to Cobbett Station, which is the home of Texas A&M. That's where the George Herbert Walk Walker Bush Presidential Library is located. And as has always been planned, 
he will be laid to rest next to his wife, the late First Lady Barbara Bush, and their three-year-old daughter Robin, who died, obviously, as an infant from leukemia. And they will be reunited uh, together again, as they always planned they would. And like any kid who's ever been enamored with a train set, I'm just enthralled with the idea of this special locomotive that is painted uh, to look like Air Force One that has been in regular service uh, hauling freight and cargo around and uh, will lead this this funeral train to College Station. And, and Bill, it's going to be very interesting. We've seen this before. I don't know if we're going to see it tomorrow, but there have been memorable train rides bringing bodies to their final destination the 1968 train ride of Robert Kennedy from New York where his funeral service was to Washington where he was laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. That has been well documented. We may see an outpouring of just love and grief uh, along the train tracks as uh, people often line the tracks with signs to say farewell. I don't know if it will happen. I don't know if security will allow that, but uh, that could be very moving tomorrow as well. And you've been hearing the engines of the presidential aircraft spool up one by one. And finally, Special Air Mission 41, presidential aircraft tail number 29,000, is moving across the tarmac. And will be airborne in short order. It is unlike any commercial uh, airport you've been to where sometimes you sit in the taxi line for hours. They have special privileges here at Joint Base Andrews, and they go pretty much any time they want to. Uh, The jet now uh, making its way down to the south end of the runway and will take off to the north, which is a great line of sight. If you've ever had the chance to watch this on television, uh, these 747s, I mean, alone are a beautiful sight. Uh, but when they're particularly done up in the colors of the United States as they have traditionally been now for over a half a century, it really is something to see. I can remember when they graduated to the 747s, and it's actually been about 30 years now, Steve Futterman, that uh, uh, they've had the 747s in service, but uh, George, uh, just huge. George Herbert Walker Bush. George Herbert Walker Bush was the president who began flying the 747. I wanted to make one point, Bill. You talk about these planes having total rights. I was I traveled occasionally with President Bush when he was president. One assignment I had, he was down in Arizona visiting the Grand Canyon. And when Air Force One took off, I guess the route they wanted was to fly over the Grand Canyon. I will guarantee you normal commercial flights, giant jets like this, do not fly normally over the Grand Canyon. We flew over the Grand Canyon, and what a view it was. Well, I always will remember that. And I'll tell you another one uh, where it flies where it wants to. I remember so vividly um, when Ronald Reagan was brought back to California, and the crowd was sitting at the Reagan Library up in the mountains, and Air Force One did a flyby at almost eye level, at least it seemed that way, uh, as the sun was going down in the west. It was one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen. Uh, And so now uh, this aircraft is getting ready to make the flight. Again, it's Special Air Mission 41, and it is just now getting ready to make its way out to the runway. Uh, Steve Dorsey, final thoughts? I think this is a final goodbye from Washington, Bill. This is uh, a moment where the nation says goodbye 
as we celebrate the, the life and legacy of this president who had a steady, even hand on the White House. He now and, goes to his homeland. Texas. And let's listen as the jet makes the takeoff from JBA. up from Joint Base Andrews. I've got about a minute to send it around. Rich Lamb, your final thoughts. Just an absolutely beautiful uh, funeral service here. The music, the words, all in tribute to a man who is called courageous, principled, honorable, distinguished, resolute, and brave. Uh, and let's hope that he has his ceiling and visibility are unlimited. And that's certainly what it looks like from Joint Base Andrews. Steve Futterman, about 20 seconds. Well, the last man to ever serve in World War II and be America's president has now left Washington for the last time. We are waiting for him here in Texas. He will be given the final salute here and laid to rest tomorrow around sunset or even in the dark at his library. We'll have more coverage of the farewell for George H.W. Bush from CBS News Radio on the radio and on our apps for iOS and Android. This has been a CBS News special report. Thank you for listening. From Washington, for everyone here at CBS News, I'm Bill Rakoff. Good afternoon.